This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with the return of BOA Audio Season 4. That's right, folks. We're back. I hope you had an awesome winter break. I know I did. And I look forward to bringing you a whole new slew of BOA Audio episodes. Stay tuned to the end of the program for a little preview of some of the stuff we have coming at you over the next few weeks. But for now, let's get rolling on our big return episode. Our guest is Ken Gerhard, author of Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters. He's also a noted cryptozoologist who's researched the Bigfoot and a whole host of other cryptids, which we'll get into in a little bit. Some of you may remember Ken's earlier appearance this season in a little mini-interview we tagged on the end of the Adam Davies episode back in November. That was just a little five- to seven-minute on-site conversation. What you're going to get here this week is a two-hour clinic on the Big Bird and the Bigfoot and a number of other beasties in the cryptozoological world. Let me run down what we're going to be talking about. In the first hour of the interview, we're going to discuss the Big Bird-Thunderbird phenomenon at length and in depth, including the 1976 Big Bird flap in Texas, the bird versus dinosaur debate, lost Big Bird evidence, the challenge of studying aerial cryptids as opposed to land and water-based creatures, pilot sightings of big birds, shootings of big birds, the paranormal elements to the big bird, and tons and tons more. That's just in the first hour. In the second hour, we're going to talk about Ken's other crypto research, beginning with his multiple investigations into Bigfoot. We'll discuss Ken's odd discoveries while on Bigfoot expeditions. We'll get his thoughts on why the government may cover up Bigfoot's existence, and his unique take on the kill-versus-no-kill debate in Bigfoot research. Stories of Bigfoot burying their dead and speculation on a post-discovered Bigfoot world. Plus, we'll find out about Ken's trips to South America, most notably the country of Belize, to study the Duende and Sesamite, two peripheral cryptids that are very rarely discussed, much less investigated. Ken went down to Belize and checked him out, and he's going to tell us all about that. Plus, he's going to detail his investigation into the Texas Chupacabras, a story that's been pretty big in the last few years. Ken's done some amazing research into that, so we're going to find out about all that as well. It's a jam-packed edition of BOA Audio. We're coming back from hiatus with a wealth of crypto goodness. Big Birds, Thunderbirds, Bigfoot, the Duende, Sesemite, and the Texas Chupacabras. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. It's a cryptozoological clinic as BOA Audio returns. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ken Gerhard, here's a little bit of background on him. Ken Gerhard grew up in Minnesota and Texas, where he developed a love of animals and the outdoors, especially natural mysteries. While growing up, Ken's travels included exotic places like Australia's Outback, Thailand, Tunisia, and the Galapagos Islands. In 1982, at age 15, Ken attempted his first field research, patrolling the shores of Scotland's Loch Ness with a Super 8 movie camera. In all, he has traveled to over 25 countries on six of the continents, 
and 44 U.S. states. In 1998, Gerhard actively began to investigate North American monsters, including the Beast of Bray Road, Ogopogo, the Loveland Frog, and Giant Turtles in Indiana. In September of 2002, he discovered the first of several suspected Bigfoot nests in the big thicket of East Texas. He's also found tracks and other evidence while searching for Bigfoot in seven different states and has worked with many of the top researchers in the field. Gerhard has also been very active in the search for South Texas's legendary Big Bird, and has uncovered unpublished sightings of that winged monster. He's also traveled to Belize to investigate two unknown hominids known as the Sesamite and the Duende. He's been featured on the History Channel's Monster Hunters, Bigfoot, and Monster Quest on episodes dedicated to his research into both the Big Bird and the Texas Chupacabra. His website is www.tonezone.com slash ken, T-O-N-E-Z-O-N-E dot com slash ken check it out. Without any further ado, you've waited long enough, my friends. Let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 2nd, 2009. Ken Gerhard talking about Big Birds, Thunderbirds, Bigfoot, the Texas Chupacabras, and a whole host of other cryptids on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Vanilla of America Audio. We have a very cool guest here for you this week on the program. He is Ken Gerhard, author of Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters. I had the opportunity to meet him and do a little mini-interview with him at the Mass Monster Mash this past October. And as promised, at the end of that interview, we've got him here on the program for a full-length sit-down interview where we're not encumbered by sitting in an alcove and having to deal with people coming in and out of the room every five minutes. So, So hopefully we can actually really dig into this topic of Big Bird's Thunderbirds, and a whole host of other cryptozoological beasties that Ken has examined, researched, and uh, gone on expeditions in search of. I've really been fascinated as I looked more and more into Ken Gerhard's career as a cryptozoologist, the sheer variety of uh, creatures that he's investigated. But we're going to start out with the big bird, and then we're going to get into Bigfoot, chupacabras, and other strange animals that I never even heard of, like the Duende and the Sisamite, or something like that. I'm sure he'll correct me when we get to it. But anyway, it's great to have him here on the program for an extended discussion. Ken Gerhard, welcome back, I guess you could say, to Banal of America Audio. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. It's great to be here. Now, I should warn people, you know, we may overlap some of the questions uh, from our little mini-interview earlier, but hopefully it won't be too many. Uh, We only covered maybe three or four points during that discussions, so uh, hopefully people won't complain about that. (laughs) We'll see when I get the emails, but let's start out with, you know, the bio, the background. Let's see. When I was growing up, I was um, very, very fascinated in, of course, cryptozoology wasn't a well-known term back in those days, but of course, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Abominable Snowman, all of those famous monsters. Occasionally, you know, I would catch the TV shows and documentaries that would come on, and uh, I was very interested in it. Uh, at a young age, and read a lot of books that were out at that time. And I was very fortunate, though, because my mother was actually a travel agent, and she got all these great discounts on vacations. So, and she loved to travel all over the world. So, when I was younger, uh, she took me on all these amazing vacations to the Amazon jungle in South America and oh, wow. Asia, Australia, and all these wonderful exotic places. And of course, wherever I went, I was always sort of curious about what legendary monsters, animals, if you will, that they had in that area. So uh, that that kind of inspired me seeing all these, you know, sort of 
remote places around the world and hearing these fabulous legends. But moreover, when I was about 15, uh, she arranged for me to go to Loch Ness in Scotland. And I was, you know, stayed there for about a week. And I was very fortunate to uh, talk to many of the locals about the monster. And at the time, I had a little uh, film camera, uh, movie camera. And I would, you know, sit by the lake and film for, for hours at a time. So um, that was sort of my first taste of, I guess, what you would call research or consider research. And... Um, as I got older, I sort of branched off into a music career, and I did that for a number of years. Um, I never really got to, you know, to, to go to school for any scientific stuff, you know, which I kind of regret now in, in retrospect. But I, I read quite a bit, as much as I could on the subject, or subjects of zoology and so forth. And uh, finally, when I was, uh, you know, when my music career was kind of winding down, going on hiatus, I decided to get back into to some of the cryptozoology stuff. And I hooked up with a group of Bigfoot researchers that are located down here in south, southeast Texas, where there are actually quite a few Bigfoot reports uh, that come in. And they sort of indoctrinated me into Bigfoot research. And from there, I just, you know, kind of just made, it became a passion of mine, I guess you would say. And um, so uh, since that time, uh, in the last few years, I've, I've been very active, traveling all over the uh, the country and, and different places in the world and investigating a lot of these what we call cryptids, which are basically unexplained animals, creatures, monsters, uh, you know, whatever you want to call them. They're basically th things that people are reporting that that aren't in the science books. Exactly. Strange mystery animals. And the world of cryptozoology seems to be getting bigger and bigger every year. It's uh, quite the craze in the last few years. It's almost beginning to displace uh, the ghost field, it seems. Well, of course, ghost hunting is very popular, and people are interested in all, all of these unexplained mysteries, UFOs, and so forth. But I think the thing that's kind of ignited cryptozoology is that, um, you know, with the media coverage these days, you, we're constantly hearing about new animal discoveries. Uh, in fact, even today on the news, there was a new uh, amphibian species that was discovered down in Colombia, you know, within the past weeks. So people, I think, are aware of the fact that new animal species are being discovered, albeit many of these are in sort of remote areas such as Central and South America. But it just sort of opens the mind to that possibility that maybe there are some, some larger and stranger and, 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 you know, perhaps scarier animals, if you will, that are, that are running around out there. Uh, possibly in our own backyards. It's really fascinating. It boggles the mind. It really makes you start to think a little bit. Now, before we even sort of dive into specific creatures and stuff, uh, you are right there in the heart of a really strange area. Texas seems like it's just like a whole other country of paranormal activity between, you know, the UFO sightings, the Bigfoot sightings, these Big Bird sightings. You know, you throw in, of course, all the conspiracy elements with the JFK assassination down there in Dallas. And in Austin, of course, is like a hub of parapolitical stuff, Texas just sounds like the place to be at times when it comes to the whole esoteric realm. Well, absolutely. And, of course, Texas is, is obviously a very big state, so we have a lot of uh, cities, a lot of land area. Uh, it's also a very historical place. You know, of course, the Spanish were here back in the uh, 16th century. The, there were the native peoples that were here before that. It's gone through, you know, many changes in governments, you know, Mexico and Texas recapturing independent. Texas was a country, of course, for a while. And, uh, you know, than the U.S. So you have all this history, you have all these places. And um, actually, the, where I'm living now in San Antonio, 
Tim. I specifically moved out here because uh, San Antonio is one of the weirdest of the weird. Uh, we have, of course, a good number of uh, many, many famous hauntings here. Uh, there's many hotels downtown. The Alamo is very haunted. Uh, moreover, there's a lot of just really strange legends and, and folklore here in this area, in this part of Texas. Uh, we have a very traditional uh, population, uh, largely Hispanic, uh, Mexican-American. Many of them are, are, are very religious and very much into their folklore and their tradition. And so we have all different types of weird legends down here. And I also moved here because of the Big Bird uh, reports, because I was at the time researching that, working on the book. And even though there were a few uh, sightings in other parts of the state, it seemed like San Antonio and the Rio Grande Valley south of San Antonio was really the hot, were really the hot spots where most of these Big Bird sightings were emanating from. So I kind of wanted to get into the thick of all that. Yeah. Now, how did you get turned on to the whole Big Bird story in the first place uh, that, that sort of inspired you to end up writing the book? Well, I'd read about Big Bird in some of the, uh, you know, cryptozoology classics that were out there. Uh, of course, back in the late 1970s, or I should say specifically in January and February of 1976, there was an, a real uh, explosion of sightings here, in, in particular in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. Um, there were many, many reports that were making the newspapers. It just seemed to be an ongoing thing for several weeks here. And... Um, there were some books that were written, uh, I guess, in the late 70s. Lauren Coleman, Jerome Clark, and some other gentlemen had come down and investigated the reports. Uh, the whole thing kind of wound down rather quickly. Uh, but I was aware of all that that history that had happened. But what really sparked my interest in Big Bird was back uh, uh, 2002, I believe. I was uh, interviewing this gentleman in Houston, a man named Richard Guzman, and he was just a simple worker, electrician, didn't really know much about the paranormal, didn't seem like he was really interested in the paranormal in any way, but he uh, he was put in touch with me because he had this unusual sighting in Houston of this weird winged creature, and uh, he described it originally as a pterodactyl. That sort of piqued my interest because many of the sightings of Big Bird, you know, people have mentioned sort of these prehistoric qualities that these creatures possess. Yeah. So um, at that point, I was I was curious since this gentleman was basically describing what these other people had described in the 70s, I, I was wondering if there were perhaps more reports out there that had never been sort of, you know, that had never come to the surface. As you know, Tim, there's a heavy ridicule factor with all of this paranormal stuff. Absolutely, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of times people are, you know, it's hard for even their best, you know, friends and their family and their their wives and spouses to, to believe, even though they want to, to believe that they really had these, you know, incredible experiences. So people are hesitant to talk about it, and I really felt like if I went down to the valley and if I spent some time here in San Antonio poking around, uh, that I could eventually, you know, stir up hopefully some of these other reports and and prove that there's been a continuing uh, phenomenon down here with the Big Bird, and that actually turned out to be the case. There's actually been a Many, many reports that have never made the newspapers, that have never made the internet. And so, you know, and, and again, we could just be scratching the surface there. So it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, how many people have actually seen this thing? And of, of course, what is it? Yeah. Big question. I guess just to sort of bring folks up to speed or get them to sort of paint a picture in their minds here for, for what we're talking about in specifics, I guess just give us like a thumbnail look of what the Big Bird is and what people are reporting so they can kind of wrap their minds around this. Okay, well, uh, the Big Bird, and uh, the name incidentally was created by the media at the time, and I guess it was kind of a play on the Sesame Street character, but essentially the Big Bird uh, is a gigantic winged animal creature. Um, and when we say gigantic, we need to keep this in perspective because uh, 
uh, as far as known species that are recognized by science, uh, we have the largest birds in, in the world uh, tend to be, uh, for example, the Andean condor, which is a very large vulture type of bird related to the California condor. And they have been known to reach, or their wings have been known to reach lengths of about 11 feet. And there's also some very lar- other very large birds, such as the, the wandering albatross, certain storks that can have wingspans upward of 9, 10 feet. Pelicans, I believe, can get quite large. But typically, you're not going to see any bird that has a wingspan of more than you know, 9, 10, or 11 feet. That's the accepted uh, scientific size that's accepted for a bird. Yeah. But anyways... Um, The big bird that was reported in the valley and that's been reported throughout South Texas, people typically report a wingspan that reaches anywhere from 15 to upwards to 25 feet across. And, of course, this is the size of a small, I guess you would say, a Cessna Piper Cub airplane. So, uh, you know, we're we're talking basically three times larger than any bird that's that's known by science. So these reports and these, these encounters are very dramatic. People are definitely impacted when they see these things. First of all, you know, the thought has to cross your mind, are these things capable of picking a person up and carrying us away? Uh, you know, are we dinner? That kind of thing. <laughs> and there are actually some accounts uh, throughout history of people being, you know, carried away uh, by thunderbirds or some of these large-winged creatures. But I need to describe, describe it a little bit more in detail because there's actually two different types of big birds. Many people have reported something that looks like basically a gigantic vulture, a raptor type of bird, something with the black or dark brown feathers, uh, a hooked beak, you know, sharp claws, basically uh, like a condor on steroids, I guess you would say. Yeah, like a super bird. Exactly, like a super bird. And this fits in with the profile of the classic thunderbird that's uh, sort of revered in Native American folklore and tradition. Um, However, there's a second group of, of big birds that are reported. And these are the ones that uh, sort of fall under the category of, I guess people would know them as pterodactyls, but a lot of times we we use the word pterosaur, which is the larger family group. And, of course, these were the uh, prehistoric flying reptiles. Uh, They lived hundreds of millions of years ago, supposedly went extinct with the dinosaurs 64 million years ago. And in fact, they weren't dinosaurs, which a lot of people think they were flying dinosaurs. They were they were a completely distinct group of flying reptiles. Interestingly, they're closely related to crocodilians. But people have specifically described these pterosaur-type creatures completely lacking of feathers, uh, leathery skin. Many people have reported sort of a bump or a head crest on the top of the head, uh, which which people may know from from illustrations and from different movies like uh, Lost World, Jurassic Park, and so forth, and uh, other witnesses have even described this long serpentine reptilian tail uh, dragging behind with a little pointy flange or diamond shape on the end. Yeah. And uh, the, this is very, very interesting because this, this is a specifically describes a certain type of pterosaur called the ramphorinkoids uh, that, that all had this very long tail with the, with the pointy diamond shape on the end. So um, the fact that, that that's been included in many of the reports is very intriguing because, you know, not a lot of people are aware of these certain uh, physiological features that these pterosaurs possessed. Uh, but, of course, it's a real enigma because these animals, as, as I said, are, you know, have been presumed extinct for, for millions and millions of years. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult to sort of swallow that concept uh, that something could have survived that long without being detected by humans. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the recurring themes of uh, some of these witness reports that sort of stood out to me, being in this field for so long, I can kind of wrap my my mind around the possibility that there's uh, 
pterosaurs flying around, possibly. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've heard enough stories now where, you know, I, I won't dismiss that outright. But then one of the recurring themes that sort of stood out to me that, that didn't really jive with all this or, or confused me, I guess you could say, is a lot of people say they have, like, a monkey-like face. Mm-hmm. What, what's that all about? Do you have any theories on that that whole thing? And I mean, because a monkey face on a on a pterodactyl doesn't make any sense. And I guess it would be like maybe a bat-like creature. Maybe we could be dealing with multiple different animals here anyway. You know what I mean? So, I mean, maybe we're dealing with pterodactyls and then some kind of other monkey face thing. But what's up with the monkey face? Well, um, <laughs> that that's a good point. Uh, there is one theory that's been floated around out there about there possibly being a gigantic species of bat. And of course, a bat, uh, in many respects, does resemble a pterosaur as far as the, you know, the leathery skin, uh, the very angular shape to the wings, uh, and so forth. The problem with that, of course, is that, uh, the largest bats in the world are, are all from Asia and Africa, the flying foxes and fruit bats and so forth. Uh, none are known in North America or South America. Also, those, those very large bats typically are vegetarians. You know, they're not, they're not predators. The bats that we have here in the Americas, um, such as the vampire bats and so forth, uh, that whole group is is actually pretty small. I mean, the largest bats in the uh, in in the in the Americas only, I think, have a wingspan of uh, perhaps six to eight inches across. So it's quite a stretch to to, to go from that size to to think that there could be a bat that that would have a 15 foot wingspan. Yeah. Although it is a possibility. Now, the other thing that uh, that is interesting is that there were actually some pterosaurs. That had a very short, flat face. Uh, in fact, I don't know if I, I can pronounce this right, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, I think it was Batronagathus, and it was uh, basically a short-faced pterosaur that had uh, that had a face that may have very well resembled a bat. So uh, you know, and, and of course, we 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 also can't discount uh, evolution yeah. and the impact on evolution. And the pterosaurs we know are are fossils from from hundreds of millions of years ago, but who knows what crazy types of adaptations or evolutions may have happened over millions of years uh, you know and if these creatures are out there they're not necessarily pterosaurs or pterodactyls in the sense that we know from the fossils but some type of evolved form now what do you make of the 76 big bird wave that went on there in texas because it's a big chapter in the book and do you think it was just a it, be, it became like a snowball effect with the media coverage and everything and people kind of started looking up and realizing that you know that there were these big birds or do you think maybe it was some kind of migratory issue where, you know, all of a sudden the birds were passing through the area at the time? Well, that's a very good point. And with these different Thunderbird, and ironically we call them flaps, but with these Thunderbird flaps, and there have been many around North America, in the 70s, of course, there was there was a flap in the uh, Illinois, central Illinois in the in 77. Pennsylvania's had some, uh, some sort of explosions of, of sightings and reports. Um, but that's one possibility uh, that, that's been suggested. Or, you know, obviously, are these creatures, if they're giant birds or, or something else, are they migratory? And if that's the case, where perhaps you know they passing through South Texas at that specific time period in the late 70s, and uh, so people were seeing them a lot at that time. Uh, you also have to consider, you know, a little bit of mass hysteria. Uh, you know, back in the 70s, you know, there were there was Bigfoot, there was UFOs. A lot of this stuff was just starting to make the newspapers. And there's certainly the power of suggestion, and we we can't forget that people are prone uh, to the power of suggestion. So at least in some cases, we have to consider the possibility that people may have been misidentifying known animals, or perhaps you know, experiencing and seeing things that you know that maybe weren't necessarily as dramatic as as the actual Big Bird. 
but there's another uh, there's another way to look at it as well, and I've found this out by researching the book. Is that you know the more you bring this stuff out and talk about it in an open forum, uh, you know it creates an environment where other people uh, are, are more comfortable coming forward if they've had a sighting or a report. So perhaps the climate was just conducive at this time or at that time uh, for people to come out and 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 report these experiences. Ultimately, it's probably a combination of all these factors. You know, there there probably was something going on at that time. Many people were seeing it. Uh, other people came forward, and perhaps there was a little bit of hysteria involved as well. Yeah, one sort of thing that came about here from the 1976 wave down there in Texas that's uh, contained in the book. You tell the story in one part of the book, then later kind of follow up on it, and it's a bit of a heartbreaker in a way. And you'll know what I'm talking about when I get into it here. And this is the uh, it was a sighting they had, and then Tom Walden uh, went out and found some tracks in his backyard, three-toed tracks. And uh, mm-hmm. the news the news came down and filmed it and everything. And then later on, you went down there, I don't know, probably at least 20 years later probably, mm-hmm. uh, to the TV station. They didn't even have the archive footage anymore. They probably taped over it because it was film, and you know that's the way they did things back then. So it's like this amazingly interesting, critical piece of potential evidence just completely lost. And, and that's yeah. the heartbreaker part of it. <laughs> yeah, that is a heartbreaker. And that unfortunately, we've had that kind of problem reoccurring throughout the, the world of cryptozoology. We've had many examples where there was physical evidence or photographs or some kind of proof that, that you know, just disappeared mysteriously. And it's very frustrating. And, of course, it, it creates uh, uh, subject matter for the naysayers to come out and say that we're maybe all full of it a little bit. But, um, yeah, there were actually the, – the TV station did come out. They filmed these tracks that were apparently quite large. Um, and uh, when I went to the TV station, unfortunately, they informed me that uh, they had not archived any of the old film uh, from the 70s uh, and actually hadn't started archiving any of their material until it became digital. So, um, uh, unfortunately, it was an opportunity lost. Uh, unless on some remote chance someone out there had a VCR running back in 1976, and who knows how many VCRs there were yeah. <laughs> down in the valley in 1976. But uh, you know, get another lost opportunity for cryptozoology because, uh, unfortunately, in the case of Big Bird and these flying or these Thunderbirds and flying monsters, there really isn't any physical evidence. Everything we have thus far is anecdotal evidence, you know, in the form of eyewitness reports and so forth. Yeah. Uh, also in the book, you do a great job sort of detailing some of these other stories and, and legends and cultural uh, mythoses of uh, flying creatures throughout the world, like the Kongamato and the Robin. Do you think we're dealing with uh, the same animal throughout the world, you know, or, you know, different species of the same animal, you know, within one sort of thing? Are these flying creatures pretty much all within the same realm, you think? Um, they, they, the descriptions, of course, are very similar. And for, for your listeners that aren't aware, there are, uh, uh, there's a great history out of Africa of, as you said, the Kongamato, which has been described by the natives as very much resembling a pterosaur or pterodactyl. And these reports have been documented for decades uh, down in Africa. And more recently, there's a creature known as the Ropen, uh, that's been investigated in, in Papua New Guinea, which is one of the most remote places in the world still. And these reports have, have been uh, told by the local people and oftentimes reported to missionaries, Christian missionaries who are over there doing uh, different work. And uh, in fact, it's a group of missionaries here in, in North America that have gotten really involved in the rope and research. These reports are, are still continuing. Um, it's interesting that these little group of pterosaur uh, reports seem to fall in some type of, you know, geographic 
uh, I guess you would say, line as far as, you know, uh, basically equatorial or jungle type of regions, uh, remote places. As far as, you know, their appearance in North America, certainly it's easier to accept the fact, uh, as far-fetched as it seems, that there might be a relict population of these surviving pterosaurs, perhaps in a remote jungle in New Guinea or Africa. Uh, it's quite a stretch then to, to, to assume that they might be flying around in South Texas. Yeah. And uh, really the only answer I have for that is that, uh, you know, if these animals are, were in any way migratory, uh, you know, perhaps some of them could have come across the ocean uh, you know, maybe in some freak weather event or something like that. Or uh, if there is a population somewhere in the Americas, uh, we would have to look at areas in Central South America, the Amazon, certainly a vast unexplored area. But what's interesting is that there are sort of renditions of animals that resemble pterosaurs on some of the Maya ruins uh, in eastern Mexico. In fact, there's a very famous carving, I believe, at um, a place called Tiyan, which is in uh, the eastern coast of Mexico, uh, which is really not that far from southern Texas. And uh, these, these creatures have been documented, or these carvings have been documented on different Maya uh, pyramids and sculptures, and they very much resemble pterosaurs. Uh, so I think that's a very intriguing possibility that if they did survive, perhaps they were living in the marshes or jungles or, or high mountainous areas of Mexico. And um, uh, who knows if they still uh, continue on there today, but uh, I certainly still collect reports from time to time of these creatures. One uh, person I want to talk to you about that's in the book, and, and sadly, uh, when I was looking at your blog, it turns out that he's passed away recently, and that's uh, Guadalupe Cantu Third. So talk a little bit about him, because he's kind of an interesting character in the book, and found a lot of witnesses for you, but then some of the witnesses didn't really pan out, and you, you sort of were wondering what was going on with all that, and it was, it was sort of an interesting little human element to the book that took me by surprise, and then, like I said, of course, when I checked out your blog, it turns out that uh, Guadalupe has since passed away since the publication of the book, so I guess talk a little bit about Guadalupe and how he helped you out. Yeah, well, that, of course, that was very, very sad when I heard about it. I developed a good friendship with Guadalupe. Guadalupe actually first appeared on the uh, Big Bird scene back in the in the 70s when, when all the sightings were taking place in 1976. At that time, as I mentioned, uh, Jerome Clark, who's a well-known UFO investigator now, mm -hmm. and uh, also Lauren Coleman, traveled down to the Rio Grande Valley, I guess simply a month or two after the reports had uh, had terminated. And uh, when they were poking around down there, they were actually introduced to this young 17-year-old Guadalupe Cantu, who at the time was very, very interested in the Big Bird reports and actually had claimed that he had found some droppings uh possible droppings from this animal on the, on the roof of his house. And uh, when Jerome and Lauren went to the neighborhood to investigate, uh, they interviewed many people in this, in this uh, community known as La Colonia, and it's a very, very old traditional Spanish neighborhood in this uh, town called San Benito. And in this one particular neighborhood, there are many, many reports and descriptions of this uh, creature they called the devil bird. Many people in the neighborhood had seen it. Uh, one elderly lady claimed she was attacked by it. So uh, Guadalupe knew about all the reports and stories, and he was investigating it even at a very young age. Uh, when I went back 30 years later to the valley, um, you know, I certainly was trying to look up a lot of these original uh, figures from the original uh, time period, and I was very lucky to actually get in touch with Guadalupe. Uh, I tracked him down. He was still around. Of course, he was an older gentleman. And uh, I think when I uh, sort of showed up at his house one day and started asking about the Big Bird, it sort of reignited his interest in the whole subject matter. But in the interim, uh, Guadalupe told me that he had had his own Big Bird sighting back in the 1990s. 
um, after years and years of researching, he had finally seen it one morning when he was uh, working a newspaper route with his brother-in-law, and they were driving, uh, you know, before dawn. So um, Guadalupe ended up being a great contact for me in the valley. He really spent a lot of time, did a lot of groundwork for me down there as far as interviewing witnesses, finding people who had who had, had sightings, and uh, you know maintained very good communication with me whenever anything was going on. And uh, actually, most recently, uh, before he had passed away, we mounted some cameras on the roof of his house because. Uh, there was there was an area there where where many of the reports or uh, you know people had seen this thing, and so we, we thought it was worth a shot to maybe hook up some of these camera traps and hope that that something would fly in front of it. Um, but I did receive the very sad news after the book came out. Uh, Guadalupe actually appeared with me on uh, on the History Channel show Monster Quest, and also he appeared on the local news here in San Antonio talking about his report and the sightings. Um, but yeah, yeah, unfortunately, he did die tragically. Um, uh, just a few months ago, which was was very sad for me, and uh, it was a very sad time. About uh, three weeks ago, when I when I finally drove down there and, and retrieved the cameras off the roof of his house, and for anyone that's interested, there unfortunately were no report or no photographs, rather on the uh, on the cameras, uh, just some very tall trucks that had driven down the street. <laughs> it was the only <laughs> thing that, that triggered the cameras, which were, which were up pretty high. But uh, yeah, Guadalupe was was quite a character and um, a very very diligent researcher and a very important part of the Big Bird uh, history. Yeah, he'll be missed, and I'm glad we got a chance here to memorialize him a little bit on the program here. So, uh, you know, his name, at least as far as the Been All of America audio series, uh, will not be lost to history. So uh, thank you, Guadalupe, for your contributions. That kind of is a good segue into something we kind of talked about in the mini-interview, but we can maybe extrapolate a little bit more, and that is uh, I'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been an any, if as far as I know, maybe you'd know, pictures or video of, of any of these big birds or thunderbirds or any of the giant birds that we know of. Well, actually, that's not uh, completely correct. There are two pieces of film okay. uh, that are one. One, unfortunately, has uh, a mystery in its own right, and this, of course, is the famous Thunderbird photo that some people may have heard of. And the scenario here is that apparently, back in the late 1800s, uh, there was this large pterodactyl, very large pterodactyl looking thing that was supposedly shot by two ranchers down in Arizona near Tombstone. And so the story goes, they propped this thing up against the side of a barn and, you know, stretching out its wings to show how big it was. And there was a story in the local uh, newspaper there, the, the Tombstone Epitaph. And supposedly there was a photograph that accompanied the story. Well, many people have claimed to have seen this photograph throughout the years, including some famous researchers like John Keel of the Mothman uh, Prophecies book, uh, Ivan Sanderson, and so forth. Uh, but as we entered into the 70s and 80s, the, the, the photo seems to have disappeared uh, completely from all the archives. Uh, no one's been able to produce a, a good copy or a copy of it whatsoever. Uh, so there's been a lot of speculation uh, there have been some kind of bad recreations of it uh, on the internet. People have floated to me of, of people dressed in Civil War costumes yeah. standing around a giant pterodactyl or whatever. Uh, these are all basically fabrications and hoaxes based on the, uh, the you know, the mystery of the of the original photograph. But uh, you know, there's that one possible you know tantalizing clue if it if it if it does exist that's floating around out there somewhere. And, of course, many researchers have exhausted a lot of time and effort trying to find a copy of that photo uh, without any success. Uh, the other piece of film, though, we do have, and that was shot in 1977 at a place called Lake Shelbyville in Illinois. 
um, by a man named Texas John Huffer. And Huffer was an experienced cameraman. Uh, he was a Native American uh, gentleman who was actually out uh, canoeing on Lake Shelbyville and uh, claims he actually saw these two gigantic birds perched in a tree. And when they took off, he took you know some film of them flying off over the trees. Uh, now, this film has been analyzed at length. Uh, unfortunately, it's inconclusive. Uh, personally, Tim, when I look at the footage, uh, the birds in the, in the footage appear to be much too large to be a vulture or eagle or any common bird that we would expect to find in Illinois. Yeah. That's my gut instinct when I look at the footage. And there's a little bit of uh, scale of reference there because the birds are flying over some, some trees and some branches, and you can kind of get a scale of how big they really are. Uh, now, unfortunately, some other scientists have sort of debunked this footage um, and written it off as simply vultures. Um, so it, it's still controversial, but the footage is out there. And uh, it, again, it uh, on the uh, Monster Quest show, uh, there was an episode called Birdzilla where they dealt with the Thunderbirds, uh, both in Illinois and Texas and all over North America. And that footage is on there, and it was analyzed by several scientists. Uh, there was one scientist, I believe out of four, that actually felt that it was a gigantic undiscovered species of bird. Uh, the other three scientists sort of, uh, you know, again, claimed that it was a, just simply a vulture. Uh, yeah. So it's intriguing footage. If anyone can, can find it out there on YouTube or anywhere else, uh, they should definitely take a look at it. Yeah, I'll try and uh, see if I can dig that up for, uh, for when we put the page together for the interview. And uh, actually, yeah, you hit the point I was going to make, actually, about the urban legend story of the picture of the, of the pterodactyl. That's bizarre, and especially because uh, you say, like, up to 20 people claim to have seen it. It's just... Uh, one of those sounds like one of those great paranormal uh, urban legends, or you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. You know, where is it? We don't know. Has anyone tried to look for it in the archive of that tombstone newspaper at all? Oh yeah, there have been yeah. many attempts to find it. The the epitaph has no, uh, and, and of course they have an archive that dates back quite a long time. They've not been able to find the photo anywhere. Uh, supposedly the photo was reprinted in a magazine back in the 1960s. Um, either a gentleman's magazine or Fade or one of those sort of paranormal magazines. And so, again, uh, attempts have been made by a number of researchers, Mark Hall uh, being one who wrote the, the wonderful Thunderbird book, uh, Richard Freeman, who's a good friend of mine from England, uh, uh, Center of Fortean Zoology, who wrote a book about dragons recently. Uh, so there have been many attempts to find it, but it's, it's, it's just another one of those pieces to the puzzle that, you know, that, again, it's very frustrating because no one can produce it. Uh, you know, maybe we would have our proof if someone could, could track that photo down. Yeah, yeah, it's bizarre. And, uh, yeah, I do remember you talking about the, uh, the footage there that you mentioned. Uh, you do mention it in the book. Kind of what I was more specifically talking about was just video footage and photographs in modern times. Like you said, the, the footage that you were just talking about was from 77. That was, uh, you know, over 30 years ago now. We don't have anything new in the last 30 years, surprisingly, given the uptick in technology, which is kind of strange when you think about it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you would think that someone at some point would have would have produced a photograph. You know, as you said, all the cameras floating around, all the f uh, camera phones that people have nowadays. Uh, I mean, there's cameras everywhere. So, I mean, uh, if these animals are still flying around, you would think someone would have snapped a photo. And it's it's just another element of the bigger mystery that there is no physical evidence for these creatures. I really don't have an answer for that. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe we don't spend as much time looking up in the sky uh, <laughs> as we think we should. Maybe they're nocturnal. Maybe they're only coming out at night. 
I'm, I'm not real sure, but I, you know, it's my fond hope that at some point someone will uh, catch one of these things and on film. Yeah, I think part of it too is just that the, it's much like UFOs and that kind of thing, it, and and Bigfoot. It's just so bizarre that probably when you're seeing it, like with your own eyes, that you don't even think about taking a picture. You know what I mean? Like you don't even want to waste a second of of time to look away from this thing because it's so amazing. Like I think it might just blow your mind so much that it completely takes you out of the element, if you will. Yeah, and that's a good point. I think a lot of people, when they have these experiences, encounters, uh, I think I just heard recently about a gentleman who uh, who had a camera in his pocket, and I believe he had a really a really good close UFO sighting. And by the time it was gone, he you know he finally snapped that he had had this camera the whole time, but he was just completely mesmerized and taken out of his element. And just was not able to react as you, as you think someone would be able to in that situation. Yeah, because, you know, it's easy in retrospect to be like, why didn't you take a picture? But then, you know, if I was there, I might just be like, forget the picture, dude. This is amazing. I just want to look at it, you know? Yeah, well, at that point, you're proving it to yourself. So I guess the uh, – yeah, <laughs> you're not thinking about how to telling your friends or, or trying to convince anyone else. So. <laughs> We're kind of working our way through the points here pretty well because we're segueing from one to the other now. I was going to kind of ask, do you think there's there might be some connection here between the big birds and uh, specifically like this pterodactyl-style bird thing and the classic stories of dragons? You know, when you think about it, they are kind of similar. So maybe the stories of dragons are really just stories of big birds that have been, you know, changed over time through word of mouth passed down through the ages. Absolutely. Well, we certainly can't uh, ignore the physical similarities between uh, the renditions of dragons, not only in Asia, but all over Europe, many parts of the world, these these legendary dragons, and uh, the descriptions that, that people are, are still giving in modern times. Um, and of course, the pterosaur, you know, th- there's been a theory for years that dinosaur, uh, dragons um, could possibly have been explained by uh, dinosaur fossils that were unearthed in the Middle Ages. And, you know, when, when people were unearthing these gigantic bones and these, you know, reptilian-looking skulls, that, that maybe they created the dragons out of, out of that. I guess my answer to that would be that if, if there are pterosaurs that are still surviving on somewhere in the remote places of the world, then they absolutely explain the dragon legends. Because the, the physical similarities, when, we, when you look at the wings, the weird serpentine tail, um, you know, presumably rows of sharp little teeth... They fit the dragon to a T. So, I mean, either you have a case or a situation where, as you said, people are passing on traditions and stories based on encounters perhaps eons ago or, or fossil discoveries, or perhaps people have cited these things occasionally throughout history, you know, reported them as such. Uh, I think I mentioned in the book there are several cases where there were some ancient coins, engravings, and things that really, really did resemble uh, pterosaurs. You know, at the time, of course, they were they were known as dragons. Yeah. Uh, but when you read the descriptions and see the illustrations and engravings, you know, you just can't help but wonder. Exactly, yeah. And when you think about it, like you point out in the book, the big birds really are reptiles. They're not even really birds. And thus, you know, even way back in the ancient times, uh, they wouldn't really call them birds probably, and they'd kind of have to come up with their own way of describing them and, and, the, and the whole idea of a dragon kind of I could see how it would come out of that well yeah and to make the issue even more confusing of course you have a, a case where uh, you know again evolution takes a turn because uh, you know the birds uh, even though we presume that they were you know they evolved from from certain species of, of dinosaurs may in some cases have resembled 
certain species of pterosaurs. For example, we know that there were some pterosaurs now that actually had a, a sort of a primitive feather type covering, uh, proto feathers. So that kind of brings into question, you know, did actually the birds evolve from the pterosaurs rather than the dinosaurs? Or was it a case of sort of concentric evolution, I guess you would say, uh, where these animals basically just look very similar because of the niche they fill? So it's it's a very confusing issue as to whether, you know, we are actually dealing with some type of surviving reptile or perhaps just, a, you know, maybe a real prehistoric species of bird that, that, that resembles, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, it's where that evolutionary chain gets murky that makes it all even more confusing. With the big birds and the thunderbirds, we're dealing with a whole different realm of cryptozoology, a very difficult realm really to investigate because, you know, with the land-based creatures like the Bigfoot and the Chupacabra and, you know, alien big cats and everything else, uh, you know, they're land-based. You, you can kind of do an expedition to go and, and look in their, you know, purported living areas and water-type beasts, uh, if they're lake monsters, you know, they're, they're kind of stuck in the little pocket of Loch Ness or... Lake Champlain or, or all the other sort of places where rumored water creatures would live, but with the flying creatures, you're kind of you're kind of shut out of luck. I mean, you can't really <laughs> you you need like uh, like the movie Twister or something. You need like a van to be chasing after these things. I guess uh, the question to sort of bring it around to a point would be: Is there an ideal way to really sort of research this big bird phenomenon? Is there a way you think, not necessarily that we could prove the big bird? But just to collect better evidence or, you know, what's the ideal method of, of uh, you know, doing an expedition for a big bird? Well, unfortunately, I haven't been able to really pinpoint one area that I think these creatures emanate from. There seems to be somewhat of a geographic pattern. And in fact, I have many maps here posted on my wall in my apartment where I've tagged the different locations where people have reported these things. And there do seem to be some clusters, but, you know, I haven't really been able to figure out any consistent patterns as far as, you know, where these things may be coming from, any type of, you know, migration pattern, anything like that. It's it's kind of random. So uh, in that sense, I really don't have a good uh, uh, plan of action as far as, you know, going beyond the actual interviewing of different people that have, that have seen these things and, and visiting the locations where they've reported these sightings. Um, what's interesting is that a lot of the reports that I've followed up on have taken place near uh, bodies of water. Um, well, that's not that unusual because we see that a lot in Bigfoot research and other cryptozoology as well because all animals, uh, you know, need water and need to be by water. The pterosaurs, uh, from what we know, were possibly fish eaters. Um, we think that's what they were designed for. Uh, they kind of glided over the, the coasts and, uh, you know, would pluck fish out of the sea, uh, much like some of the modern birds, pelicans and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would make some sense too. But as far as the, the big bird, my gut instinct is that if these things, again, are in North America, the most likely place would be perhaps the remote mountains of, of Mexico. And, uh, you know, right across the border here in Texas, we have the Sierra Madre Mountains of Mexico, which are some of the most unexplored places in North America still. I mean, they're very remote, uninhabited areas, very difficult to gain access to. But since we don't have a sort of pattern or, or, or anything like that, figured out yet. We, we really don't know when these things, if they migrate, when they would be coming across and so forth. Um, so I really, I, you know, I have not really been able to mount an expedition, you know, in the sense that I have with other creatures like Bigfoot or with a lake, as you said, where you know exactly where you're going. Yeah. Uh, so really, really most of the Big Bird research I've done has just been anecdotal 
uh, investigating reports, eyewitness reports, talking to the eyewitnesses, looking at the locations, and trying to derive some type of consistent pattern. And unfortunately, that just hasn't emerged yet. Yeah, you might have to just wait for like another 76-esque flap to... uh to happen and then sort of get yourself into the area while it's going on. That might be the best case scenario, I guess. Exactly. That would be my biggest hope. The paranormal world's favorite thing, it seems, is to, you know, when a mystery like this happens, to try and tie it into other mysteries or to sort of lump it in with a whole overall genre of paranormal-ness, if you will. You know, and I'm sure there's been efforts or theories that sort of try to tie the Big Bird phenomenon in with the Mothman or with UFOs and stuff like that. I guess just where do you stand as a researcher on the idea of that this thing is not really a natural creature, but some kind of, you know, interdimensional crossover, accidental interdimensional crossover or paranormal phenomenon that we couldn't wrap our minds around quite yet? I think my stand on that sets me apart from a lot of the cryptozoologists that are out there. Uh, A lot of the cryptozoologists, um, more notable cryptozoologists, have, have maybe more of a scientific foundation sort of background and sort of approach all of these cryptids from a from a more zoological standpoint. I tend to keep an open mind, Tim. I mean, I certainly, you know, I, I want to consider the possibility that we could be dealing with a physical animal that could, say, be photographed, caught, uh, and so forth. But I just, I don't think we can turn our back on the possibility that there could be something going on here that's simply beyond our realm of understanding, beyond our comprehension. And uh, I certainly don't rule out the possibility that, at least in some cases, we could be dealing with something that, and I guess if you want to use the term interdimensional, you know, I guess that's the best way to describe it. But, you know, I don't think we have a full understanding of how the universe works. And it certainly has been, uh, you know, theorized, at least by Einstein and others, that there could be other dimensions that, that we're not aware of, uh, you know, besides the three, uh, the big three that we have. So, um uh, it would certainly, if nothing else, explain a lot of these these reports and the fact that we can't pin these animals down, the fact that they only appear for brief periods of time. There certainly could be something, you know, along those lines going on. And, uh, you know, another aspect could be that, uh, you know, we could be dealing with what uh, people in, in ghost hunting and paranormal field refer to as time slips. And, of course, time slips are, are supposedly, uh, you know, uh, instances where people are, for whatever reason, propelled back into an earlier period of time. If you believe this sort of thing, uh, certainly we know that pterosaurs did live for millions of years. Uh, so perhaps in some way, uh, you know, it's at some certain time and place and juncture of time and space, uh, people are seeing these things because they are, for whatever reason, you know, in existence in that particular location at that particular time. I guess that's the best I can explain it because I'm not really into the metaphysical side as much. All I can say is that I'm very open-minded to that possibility that we could be dealing with, you know, not necessarily a flesh and blood animal, but just something, you know, very, very different. Yeah, we got to keep that door open. Uh, I respect you for doing that. I'm, I'm of the same, of the same uh, variety because. You know, until we have some kind of definitive answer, you gotta, you gotta kinda keep uh, all these potential situations open and maybe someday if they can get this dimensional theories proven, uh, we could unlock the whole, the whole kit and caboodle of UFOs, Bigfoots, you know, big birds, all of a sudden, you know, they figure out the dimensional thing, come up with some kind of headset for people to wear so they can see in the fourth or fifth or sixth dimension and then, you know, next thing you know, Bigfoot and, all that stuff's proven, so you never know. Absolutely, and I think that's the main thing is that people just, anyone that's interested in the paranormal, you know, whether it be ghosts, UFOs, 
cryptozoology, whatever, we all really need to keep an open mind uh, because science and history books are constantly being rewritten as scientists discover new things and change theories and so forth. And under, understand that, of course, the traditional scientists, you know, for obvious reasons, don't really get into this type of research because they're subject to ridicule and, uh, you know, missing out on promotions and grants and that type of thing. Um, but as a cryptozoologist or a paranormal research, we have a little more free license to sort of open our mind to these kinds of possibilities. And, you know, without thumbing our noses at science, which, of course, science is the foundation of all of our knowledge. So we have to we have to sort of stand behind our good theories and so forth. But on the other hand, um, I think if we all accept can accept the fact that we really don't know as much about our world and the universe as we think we do, um, perhaps very little, that there are things going on around us all the time that we just don't understand and we may never understand, but we certainly need to investigate and try to find the answers. Absolutely. Have there been any accounts of people like shooting these things or, or trying to take them down, or is it usually just too fleeting and a, a sighting to to get a shot off? Well, of course, the Thunderbird photo uh, thing we talked yeah. about, and that was supposedly one that was shot, even though that's sort of unproven either way. Guadalupe uh, Cantu told me about, uh, I believe it was his uncle had taken some shots at, at, at the big bird when it was in their neighborhood with a, uh, unfortunately, with only a 22 rifle. It didn't seem to have any effect. Other than that, I'm really not aware of anyone taking shots at these things. Uh, you know, unfortunately, that opportunity has not presented itself you know, and again, it could be a, a situation where, as with the cameras, you know, yeah. maybe there's someone that that has a gun, but uh, you wouldn't even think to raise it, <laughs> you yeah. know, and yeah. to sort of reinforce that. Uh, I've had the opportunity twice to speak with Bob Gimlin, who, of course, was the, there when the famous Bigfoot, Patterson Bigfoot footage from the 1960s was filmed. He was the other gentleman that was there and at the time was, was armed with a thirty thirty rifle. Um, he did you know, keep it close by, but, uh, you know, and, and he has sort of different interpretations of that. I don't think he really wanted to shoot the thing unless it, uh, it turned out to be aggressive. Um, but, you know, he kind of admitted that uh, to me that, uh, you know, at the time it just wasn't crossing his mind, even though he had his rifle right there. He was just so amazed by what he was seeing at that time. You know, this this large, hairy, man-like creature, you know, striding across a creek bed in front of him that, uh, you know, it wasn't until after the the whole thing had sort of uh, subsided that he, you know, it had even occurred to him that he had had the rifle on hand. Yeah. Same thing as the photos we were talking about. I think it seems to be something something that just goes on in the, in the moment when you're just, like, amazed by what you're seeing. You just don't – you just freeze, I think, and, and, and look at the thing. Whether there's a paranormal element to that, we may not ever know, but there's definitely some human element to it where you're – just so mm. tweaked out that you're like, <laughs> yeah, shocked, shocked, frozen. traumatized. Yeah, how you want to say it. In the last chapter of the book, you do a really masterful job of, uh, you know, theories and speculation of sort of uh, not just uh, putting forward theories and speculation, but also debunking the debunkers or, or refuting the skeptics. And you sort of lay out some pretty good points there that the theories on that the skeptics and the mainstream scientists have put forth for big birds and for thunderbirds just doesn't really hold up. As far as, you know, sometimes they're aggressive, they don't match descriptions, the theories that the scientists put forth aren't tenable with the witness reports. So you definitely think that uh, that this remains an unproven thing and that the skeptics and the scientists, they're, they're not hitting the nail on the head as far as what their theories are and what this is. Well, um, and again, I work with some scientists and I have the greatest respect for for anyone that's involved in science and yeah, I wasn't, pursuit you know. of discovery. But, um, 
you know, we have to keep in mind that the reason cryptozoology exists in the first place uh, is because the sci scientists, traditional scientists, are not at liberty to look into these types of matters uh, for a number of professional, personal reasons, whatever. Uh, certainly scientists are, uh, you know, they receive rigorous training throughout the course of their education, and they are taught that what you're reading in your textbook, that is the theory, that is the belief, or I guess I guess they don't use the word belief in science, uh, but it's the accepted theory and so forth. So anything sort of outside the box like this that I guess uh, contradicts uh, science and, and, you know, longstanding scientific uh, theories, um, you know, it, it creates quite a uh, conundrum for, for these uh, scientists. So in that sense, though, I, you know, and again, this this is to me it's all about you know being open minded and i think as human beings uh regardless of of what you do in you know for an occupation we all need to be open minded to that possibility uh that there simply are things that we just don't know and we just don't understand and uh we certainly need to strive to understand them that's the human experience you know discovery um but um you know i can understand from their point of view why it is very very difficult to accept these these sightings and these reports of these animals uh, without any physical evidence to back it up. On the other hand, I've interviewed many of these eyewitnesses of Big Bird, and uh, many of the people that I've talked to are very, very impacted by these experiences. And you can really tell that they've, you know, by talking to them, you can really tell that they've had some type of experience that just does not fit neatly into the context of, of what, what they think should be or what is accepted as reality. So, you know, uh, that's the part that I can't discount is just the emotional impact on all of these eyewitnesses and the feeling that they really have seen something quite extraordinary. Yeah. Do you have, like, a final thesis on what these things are? I, we kind of touched on the idea that there's probably two different things going on here, giant birds and then a potential uh, pterosaur-type creature. So is that pretty much sum up, like, kind of where you're at on the big bird theories? Well, uh, I think the, the only two theories that we can really – you know, attribute all of this, all of these big bird reports to, uh, one would be that there is some type of surviving relic species, uh, something that's, you know, obviously gigantic. Um, uh, I guess you could use the term prehistoric, even though, um, you know, obviously these animals are, are sort of winging around in modern times, but uh, they do closely match different fossil forms. So we have to consider that possibility uh, that there are some type of, uh, you know, perhaps a small population of these animals uh, existing in some remote corner of the Earth. And, you know, because they are winged, they are able to fly around the planet. Uh, the winged albatross can, can circle the planet many times throughout the course of its life. So any enormous an uh, animal that could learn how to ride the, the air currents and so forth could, could possibly, you know, again, jump from Africa to North America or from South Central America to North America on occasion. The other possibility we just touched on is that we're dealing with something paranormal, something interdimensional. Perhaps sometimes there are doors that are being opened or entities, if you will, that are that are moving from one place to another. And occasionally and rarely they're seen by people. And uh, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily invisible or non-physical. I mean, obviously they have physical attributes at the time they're being seen. Uh, so those are the two the two theories I think we have to consider. And, of course, there are more mundane reports, and we have to occasionally – people probably are misidentifying very large birds or, or seeing things that – and perhaps misinterpreting them. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's kind of a, what we call a composite identity 
in the case of Big Bird, where we have maybe a little bit of everything going on. Yeah. I think there's a, uh, at least one account in the book of a Big Bird sighting from someone who's flying a plane. Are there many other ones like that, or is that pretty much few and far between, uh, someone you know, in a plane seeing a Big Bird? Um, actually, there have been a, a couple of reports like that. I'm not thinking of a whole a whole bunch, but uh, I remember there was uh, the, the pilot you're referring to in, in Alaska named John Booker, and he was uh, flying a plane up in Alaska, I believe, in 2006. Um, maybe it was 2004, I apologize, 2004, uh, when he saw this thing sort of flying next to him. And, of course, as a pilot, he was pretty well trained at, at judging size and scale. So he was very, very impressed by this thing and thought that it was probably the size of the airplane he was flying. Um, there was also a pilot uh, over the Hudson River in 1961 uh, that reported a, a giant bird uh, that was as big as his plane. Um, but, uh, again, that's a, a surprising... Uh, surprising that more pilots haven't reported these things if they're up there uh, or maybe it's again something to do with the ridicule factor where where they're just not comfortable coming out with these experiences because people would question their uh, ability uh, <laughs> to operate the plane <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and their judgment and so forth yeah that is weird but it might it, it, also, it might tie in too with that government regulation on not being allowed to talk about UFO if you're flying a plane, sure. it somehow uh, it falls into UFOs somehow. We are dealing with a UFO in its own right. <laughs> That's true. That's mm. true. All right, before we move into your Bigfoot research and your trips to Belize and the chupacabras and all the other weird creatures you've looked at, uh, where can folks pick up Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters? The Big Bird book is available at Amazon.com online and also at many other uh, major book retailers online. Nice. And I'm nice. sure if they Google search the title that they'll find many, many options to buy it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Or they can always uh, check out your website here. Let me get it up on here. www.tonezone.com slash Ken. And let me spell mm -hmm. out Tone Zone for folks. T-O-N-E-Z-O-N-E dot -E com slash Ken. And uh, you want to give out your MySpace too or no? Yeah, go ahead. That's fine. All right. It's uh, myspace.com slash Ken. Wow, you must have been like one of the first people on MySpace to get that choice name. Actually, it is Ken Gerhard. I oh. think they, uh, they omitted the, the last name. If you're looking at my business card, yeah. I think they, <laughs> yeah. the printer made a mistake, and I didn't realize it until I got my cards home. But, yeah, no, it's Ken Gerhard. Oh, okay. MySpace, yeah. I was going to say, I thought you must have been like the first 20 people yeah. on MySpace. To get... I, was, I was it. I was the first person on MySpace. <laughs> it's like you and Tom. So, um, you know, the web page or whatever is just something that you guys do for fun. Do you have a, a real job? Well, that is our job. Oh. We don't technically get money for the hours we put in, but it is our job. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. into the Bigfoot stuff, and I'm based a lot of this on some of your stuff on, on the Tone Zone site, because you sort of put up some rhetorical questions and stuff, and I kind of want to repose them to you and talk a little bit about a few of the ones that you mentioned here. Okay. Uh, but before we sort of even dive into that, I guess, talk a little bit about uh, your research into Bigfoot, because you've been really digging into the Bigfoot mystery for quite a while, and even at the beginning of the book, you mentioned uh, you were out at the Big Thicket in Texas, which is an infamous area of strange 
sightings and mysterious happenings. So I guess just talk a little bit about your research into Bigfoot for, to kick it off. Well, um, as I mentioned, I, of course, I've been interested in Bigfoot since I was very young. And Bigfoot was making a lot of headlines and, and so forth back in the late 1970s and 80s. As far as my research into Bigfoot, I really didn't become active in uh, until about 2001, 2002, in, that, in those two years. Basically, I joined up with a group of Bigfoot researchers in southeast Texas, and as you mentioned, um, the Big Thicket, uh, which derives its name from the sort of impassable nature of the, uh, of the terrain down there. Uh, you know, it's very thick, very brushy. Uh, many of the earlier settlers and native people that were in that area actually uh, came up with that name. But interestingly, there are a, uh, a lot of Bigfoot reports that emanate from East Texas and, uh, of course, Louisiana, Arkansas, and some of the neighboring states. But I got into Bigfoot research and uh, went to some areas in the Big Thicket where there had been a lot of reports, uh, specifically in an area called Turkey Creek. And uh, it was uh, when I was hiking through this Turkey Creek area that we actually, uh, along with some associates, we discovered some, uh, what, what I describe as a nest. And uh, perhaps I'm using the wrong term there, but uh, this thing basically looked like a giant, I guess you'd say an igloo type thing. Uh, it was a structure. Uh, looked like it had been constructed by something. It consisted of saplings that had been pulled down, pulled over into an arch, and sort of woven uh, amongst each other. And then the entire structure was thatched with a mixture of dead grass, uh, dead leaves, and so forth. Oh, wow. Uh, so when we stumbled up on this thing, our first thought was, well, wow, that looks like a hut or a teepee or something. It, it definitely did not look like a, an accident of nature. I mean, it looked like there was some intelligence behind it. Uh, and, of course, we can't rule out the possibility that it was constructed by a person or people. Um, but when I crawled inside this thing, it didn't seem... Like it would be very hospitable to, uh, you know, to humans. Uh, yeah. You have snakes, spiders, oh. uh, alligators, all kinds of things slithering around in the thicket. Now, was there any sort of smell residue from the, if it was a Bigfoot? You know, I there was heard. no smell. Uh, I could not find any hairs or tracks or anything like that. Uh, it was a pretty good size inside. Uh, it seemed like it would certainly be be spacious enough for a very large creature or animal or, you know, perhaps several people to, to climb inside. Uh, to escape the elements and so forth. We took some film of it. In close proximity to that, we also discovered a uh, branch. And when I say a branch, it was actually a very thick branch uh, that had been twisted or wrenched into a corkscrew uh, shape. And uh, it was, you know, it was a fresh branch. It wasn't dead. So, it, you know, you, you can only imagine what kind of force it would take to, to do, do something like that. Yeah. Uh, so those were two of the first things that I saw that, that sort of really piques my interest as far as, well, wow, there could be really something behind this. Uh, you know, maybe there's something out here that's, that's, that's doing this stuff. From there, I became uh, involved with Chester Moore Jr., who's a, who's a noted uh, cryptozoologist down here in South Texas, uh, quite a character. Uh, he's taken many of us out there in, in, in the woods. I believe Nick has gone out there with him as well, Nick Redfern. Mm -hmm. um, Chester is really an interesting character. He's grown up as a hunter and outdoorsman in Texas. Uh, he has a zoology degree. He's very knowledgeable about animals, animal behavior, wildlife, tracking, and all these things. So, I mean, he he's really an amazing person to go out in the field with because he sees and finds things that you, you wouldn't perhaps normally overlook. Uh, but Chester took me to some interesting areas where, you know, where we heard some things, uh, found tracks and so forth. And, you know, it, 
basically at different points throughout South Texas, Southeast Texas. Um, at one point, Chester and I actually uh, were up in an area called Little Cottonwood Lake, which is on the border of Texas and Oklahoma. And it was at, uh, at that place where I believe that I heard some, I guess I'll call them vocalizations. And uh, some of the most convincing things that I've ever heard, uh, you know, went out in the field. Um, I was fortunate to record these sounds. I did have a digital camera at the time, even though it was dark. I, I turned on the, the camera so I could use the microphone on board. Yeah. And uh, these sounds I have to describe, I guess I can only describe them as sort of low guttural grunting or panting sounds. Um, when we heard them, we were both pretty much in shock. Uh, even Chester, who's heard all kinds of animal sounds uh, out in the woods of Texas, was you know really taken aback, didn't know what we were hearing. Uh, just the sheer volume of these sounds. I mean, it just seemed to be shaking the trees. Oh, man, I'd be uh, scared. Be scared? Yeah, it was kind of a wake-up <laughs> call. That's, you know, the first time you encounter something like that out in the field, is uh, that's when you first start questioning, you know, why the heck am I here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about before, about the shock factor, just, you know, at the time you're not thinking because you just you can't believe it's really happening. Um, but anyways, we... Uh, we weren't able to flush out whatever it was. We did actually, uh, to our credit, we did attempt to somehow drive drive the thing out of the brush. You know, I had my camera going just in case. Yeah. Um, it was dark, but I had sort of a simple, primitive, I guess, night vision type thing attached. Chester had a gun and was uh, bold and brave enough to actually try to crawl in into the area, but it was uh, it was impossible. It was just too brushy and thick. The next morning, we finally did break through to that area where we had heard the sounds and there was a small beach there uh, on on the lake and uh, what's interesting really interesting to me is that um, on the beach there was a basically a pile of turtle shells uh, that had been completely stripped of all the meat and many of them ripped completely in half um, and they were quite kind of stacked together into a little pile there um, I'm not really familiar of or aware of any animals in North America that would be capable of, you know, completely ripping a turtle shell in half. Uh, if you can imagine the kind of dexterity and strength that that would require. I mean, these are good-sized turtles. Yeah. Uh, and furthermore, the fact that all of the meat and remains uh, were completely taken away from the shell. There was, you know, there was no partially eaten remains or anything like that. So, it's, again, it's kind of interesting when you get into this kind of research when all the dots start connecting, you know, and, uh, you know, you certainly don't want to jump ahead and form too many crazy theories, but, you know, the sounds, uh, the structures or, or markers or formations, as we call them in Bigfoot research, different other things that seem to turn up, you know, when you get into these hot areas, it just seems like all these things start acting in concert and coming together. And uh, as a researcher, it's very compelling. Yeah, yeah, sounds exciting. Now, with regards to the shelter thing you found, have uh, have other type of structures been found in other places? You know, is this a recurring theme in, in Bigfoot research? Well, as a matter of fact, it certainly is. Uh, the most famous structure um, or nest, if you will, that, that was discovered uh, was in the 1990s. It was discovered up in Ohio, near Akron, Ohio, uh, by a, a researcher named Jody Cook and another man named George Clapison. It was very, very impressive. I mean, I've seen pictures of this thing and it, it it was huge it was enormous basically looked very similar to the one that i found but just much larger sort of an igloo shape a dome shape i guess uh completely constructed out of branches dried grass and so forth 
other structures similar to this have also been found, and I've seen pictures and been presented with pictures from other researchers from places like Mississippi, Tennessee, and, and Virginia and so forth, where people have found these almost identical types of things, uh, Florida as well. So, um, you know, again, it's just one of those recurring themes that we find in Bigfoot researcher. Now, can we conclusively tie these things to Bigfoot? Well, as, as far as I know, no one's actually seen one being constructed or seen a Bigfoot in or around one. But it's just, it, it, it's very interesting to note that, that we do find these, these things in areas where Bigfoot has been reported typically, and particularly in, in hot areas where there have been many sightings. Um, so it just kind of adds to the whole weight of evidence that, that there could be some intelligent life form out there in the woods, you know, constructing these things. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. On the blog there, tonezone.com slash can you, you raise sort of the rhetorical question, does the government know about Bigfoot? And at, at first blush, you think this is going to be like a crazy conspiracy type thing, but you do sort of like say, you know, you're not into conspiracies and that's cool. I understand that. That's fine. But you do raise sort of, uh, you do play devil's advocate, I guess you could say, and, and raise uh, a point of view that I'd never even thought of. And that if the government knows about Bigfoot, you know, they're covering it up for lack of a better term. It might just be sort of an economical type thing sort of like what happened with the spotted owl. And, you know, they're not covering up Bigfoot because it's an alien, but they're covering it up because, you know, they might have to take huge swaths of land off the economic map if, if Bigfoot turns out to be discovered. So I could see it kind of from the government's point of view that they might just be like, hey, let's just leave this thing alone because if it turns out the, the public finds out that Bigfoot's real, you know, then we're going to have to shut down huge parts of, of you know, the Pacific Northwest to make them into conservation areas that, you know, it's going to crush the economy up there. So I guess let's just talk about that whole idea if the government does know about Bigfoot. Well, first of all, we can't, we certainly can't uh, underestimate the power of the almighty dollar, particularly in this day and age. And, uh, you know, as you sort of alluded to, there there's a lot of money involved here in, in as far as, uh, you know, logging projects, forest development, and so forth. Uh, I can't imagine what kind of red tape was involved as far as, you know, putting land aside, uh, you know, either the government, you know, taking it and protecting it, uh, creating reserves, habitats, and so forth. Uh, so it's it's just kind of a big tangled mess. Um, and, of course, the other aspect is we don't know how human these creatures are. Um, you know, we, we typically in, in cryptozoology, we tend to think that these are basically highly evolved primates. Uh, certainly they walk on their hind legs, which makes them closer to humans than anything else we know on the planet. Uh, so that brings up that whole debate. Are we dealing with some type of primitive human form? If so, uh, you know, if you think about, you know, again, the the ruckus that went on, you know, that, that surrounded that owl that you were talking about. I mean, now we're talking about something that's almost human. Um, you know, is this an indigenous form of people? Whatever it is, it would certainly have to be protected. I mean, there would be such a such an outcry uh, that the government would have to take some kind of action. Um, so it's just, it's a very complicated situation. I'm not sure the government would know how to deal with it. Uh, uh, big corporations, uh, you know, certainly playing a, playing a hand. Uh, so I, I think that there's a possibility that the government on some level, you know, is aware of a lot of things that we, that we're not aware of. And it's kind of a need to know basis. Yeah. Uh, probably similar to the whole UFO thing. You know, they, they may very well know about them, but, uh, you know they're 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 worried not only about the economic impact, uh, but also you know just the psychological and social impact that it would have on our society, 
you know, it would basically change everyone's perception, and, and we really just, we really don't know what would happen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And with the Bigfoot and the government, it might just be the case where, you know, the government may know that Bigfoot's real, but that might be all they know. Do you know what I mean? The Bigfoot may be so elusive and everything that the government might just know it's real, and they might just be like, yeah, we know it's real, but that's all we know. We don't know where it lives or how to track it or even anything else, so... It, it would be like a fruitless task for them to even let anyone know. So who knows? Yeah, and then there's the security issue, you know, because of an acknowledgement similar again to UFOs. You know, I, I think the government, if, if you know, doesn't want to admit that these things are out there because they don't know how to stop them, how to, to defend the, the nation and, and the world against them uh, if they were to have any kind of hostile action. Uh, well, in the case of Bigfoot, um, there are actually a number of reports uh, where these things have either attacked people or showed aggression towards people. Uh, now, is it malicious? I don't think so. I think we're just dealing with territorial behavior, you know, just like any type of animal species or even a person. You know, you've got your turf. You're going to defend that turf. That's yours. It's your your piece of land. So, um, you know, if you consider how many people are out in the woods every day hiking, camping, fishing, hunting, uh, you know, if suddenly it were revealed that there were these, you know, eight foot, nine foot tall, several hundred pound, uh, you know, primates running around in the woods and that they could be a danger to people. I mean, you know, how is the government going to counteract that? What actions are they going to take? And how is that going to impact, you know, the economy as far as people out working in the woods and so forth? Yeah. And uh, one of the things I noticed on your blog here when you were talking about the Bigfoot is a refreshing outside-the-box stance, I guess you could say, within the world of cryptozoology is that uh, you're pro-kill on the Bigfoot. Is that am I, am I understanding this right? Yeah, you got it. Um, I have no problem with that, so don't. I I know it sounds grisly, but it's uh, okay. (laughs) Well, it's a very controversial thing. Absolutely, you're one of the few people I've talked to that is pro kill, and I've kind of wavered in the past few years, but now I'm I'm starting to come around to the pro kill point of view. Getting a little fed up with the Bigfoot, you know. It's time we solve this mystery, and and then if 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 killing is the is the means, then I say go for it. That's kind of the, that's kind of where I'm falling lately. But, but what are your thoughts as a, as one of the few pro kill people that I've heard from? Uh, you know, lay this out for me because I'm in agreement actually lately. So, well, the first thing people have to consider is uh, there's not just one Bigfoot. I mean, obviously, if the if these things exist, there has to be a viable breeding population uh, in order for for any type of animal species to exist. There have been some estimations made, and of course it's all speculation, but as far as a, a population of these Bigfoot creatures in North America, uh, in order for them to maintain a viable breeding population, it's estimated that there must be at least several hundred and possibly thousands. Oh, wow. I think the highest estimate I've heard is possibly up to a few thousand throughout you know parts of North America and Canada, which would still make it somewhat of an endangered species, I guess, in the in the big picture. But of course, uh, you know, we 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 have not been able to prove this thing. The search has been going on for decades. There's been at least some good film evidence taken, I think, in the Patterson film, though that's still controversial. You know, and all these years later, it's 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 not going to prove anything. And then ultimately, we have to look at the way science has basically documented and proven different animal species over the past centuries. Uh, even the the mountain gorilla of Africa, uh, which was sort of a legendary creature similar to Bigfoot in Africa, you know, in African folklore and legend, uh, was not taken seriously by the white man until a, uh, I believe it was a Belgian captain, actually did shoot one of these, these gorillas and was able to return to Europe with its hide and, and bones. And at that point, uh, you have a type specimen, as we call it in science, 
you know, something that scientists can physically study and compare. And, and uh, you know, it's only then that we can really truly accept a species when we actually have the physical evidence in front of us. Here it is. Here are the bones. We can study the bones. We can study the fur. We can study the anatomy and so forth. Uh, now, as grisly as this sounds, um, I think in, in the long run we're doing a big favor to Bigfoot because, uh, you know, at the, at the point that we do prove that there is one out there, uh, suddenly there is going to be an outcry and, of course, everyone's going to want to protect the rest of the species because, you know, these animals, you know, are, are really truly amazing creatures, probably the closest thing to humans that we have on the planet. We don't know how close they are. Um, and of course, I guess that's that's the other big uh, controversy with the, with the pro kill issue is that you know these things could be much closer to human than we realize. Um, so it, it certainly is a controversial topic in the field, and I certainly see the other side of the argument as well because I you know I, I'm not sure how I would feel about having to be the one to pull the trigger. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my best hope is that we will actually find one that has died you know of natural causes. Uh, which unfortunately has not happened yet, but um, you know is certainly possible as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, the most pragmatic uh, researchers in the Bigfoot field uh, include John Green, who of course has written many, many famous books, has studied the reports or researched the reports, you know, dating back to the 1950s and 60s, and the late Dr. Grover Krantz, who was a very noted uh, physical anthropologist from Washington State, who really risked his whole reputation and stuck his neck out there when he you know, got involved in Bigfoot research. Uh, he was sort of snubbed by by all the by all of his peers, um, but he felt the same way. Uh, he was very pragmatic about it. We have to have a body. We have to have the physical proof. That way, no one can deny that they are real. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like I said. That's kind of where I'm getting at on this thing. Because if we really want solutions, that's the that's the best way to do it. Now, what about the whole idea, you know, of tranquilizing and tasers? You kind of explain why that might not work. We don't know what, you know, tranquilizers is a complicated situation. If we're dealing with some kind of creature, we don't even know how much it weighs or anything. You need a certain amount of trank in that kind of thing. You certainly don't want to shoot one with a tranquilizer and have it not take effect because you're, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you're a few feet away from it and you just shot it with a, with a dart and the thing doesn't go down, I think it's going to come after you. So uh, that would be a bad scene if, if that was the case. But it sounds like Tranquilizers, tasers, nets—that kind of thing. These probably uh, aren't aren't viable options to to capture the Bigfoot, as far as we know. I think people are really underestimating the abilities of these creatures when they when they suggest such things, uh, because first off, uh, it's very rare that someone is actually able to get close to one of these animals. Uh, they're extremely elusive. Uh, their tendency is to move away as quickly as possible, which apparently they're able to do at incredible speeds, um, traveling through brush. Uh, so first of all, you have to get close enough to one. And from my understanding of a tranquilizer guns just aren't that accurate, and you really have to be close up to get a good shot off. Whereas with something like a, a high-powered rifle, you certainly have a lot more distance and range. Um, the other thing is, as you mentioned, we, we just don't know how much tranquilizer to use. I mean, uh, you know, these animals are, are presumably several hundred pounds. Uh, you know, it'd be shooting like, I guess, shooting a grizzly bear. Um, there's just too many variables there and things that could go wrong. The animal could, you know, run off and, and you know, escape deep into the brush before it actually, the, the drugs take effect and then we, you'd never find the body. Uh, the animal may not be affected enough and could turn aggressive and, and then it would be a danger to the person shooting the gun. Nets and tasers, I think people are just kind of, sh you know, taking shots in the dark there because, yeah. uh, 
these animals are incredibly, from my research, what we're dealing with here, these animals have evolved and adapted for thousands of years to avoid humans. Uh, and that's why they've been able to do it so well. They're highly intelligent. They're big. They're strong. They're fast. They're nocturnal. Um, they may have other defense mechanisms like the, the, the stench that they put off. Perhaps they have some type of stink gland or something. Um, who knows? I mean, we really, we really don't know anything about what we're dealing with here. Um, so to, to propose all some of these crazy ideas, uh, you know, more power to anyone that wants to try them. But uh, for my money, you know, the most logical way is to just get a top uh, hunter, big game hunter, someone with a powerful rifle, uh, you know, perhaps a night vision scope if these things are nocturnal. You know, that just seems like the most logical way that, to accomplish this. Yeah, yeah. What about like a giant box with a stick? You know, like in the cartoons? <laughs> Knock the stick over? We... Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. We need a big box, but it, it's doable. Aside from the big game hunter idea, the other school of thought, I guess, is sort of like that you need a, oh, I'm trying to think of that lady now, the uh, the gorilla researcher lady. I forget her name. Oh, uh, Diane Fossey? Yeah, you need like a situation like that maybe where you go out to the woods and you spend like, you know, six months out there or something so they get used to you and maybe then you can get close to them and stuff. What do you think of that whole idea? Because that seems to be the other prevailing theory on the best way to go about proving the Bigfoot if you're not going to kill it. Well, I think the, fortunately there are people that are trying that method and, I, you know, I think there could be something there. Um, certainly these animals are also very curious and... You know, perhaps instinctually they they would be able to pick up on the fact that someone is not aggressive or, or not being aggressive towards them. But I I just don't know how how, how practical that is because first of all these animals are, are certainly uh, you know very very few in number. Uh, I believe that they're very nomadic that they travel quite a bit have a huge range of territory. I guess if you could draw them into one area uh, over a period of time and get you know and get close enough to them. Uh, it would certainly be a possibility. On the other hand, there's the unpredictability factor. And, you know, as I just said a moment ago, we we just don't know much about these animals, their behavioral traits, their instincts, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that they're presumably eight or nine feet tall, weigh several hundred pounds, could probably tear a person in half. And not to scare anyone, but there there really are a lot of uh, reports and, and accounts of these things being aggressive towards humans. Uh, you know, not necessarily killing humans. I don't know if that's... To, you know that's ever been reported more than perhaps a couple of times in, in you know in vague old his, historical references. But these animals, like all animals, are to be respected and feared in their element. So I, you know I, I'm not the person. I, I'm certainly not the person that's going to go out there and try to befriend <laughs> <laughs> befriend Bigfoot. I, I you know at least from my point of view, that's not not the way to approach it. Yeah, yeah. And there are logistical concerns with something like that. I mean, I can't even imagine spending like six months to a year out in the Pacific Northwest in the woods. Like, I think after like three months without any progress, I'd go a little crazy. So, you know, you'd have to be a really patient person to take up that kind of challenge. And there are people that have tried that. I mean, some of the old school Bigfoot researchers like Rene DeHinden, you know, that actually did spend years and years out there in the woods camping out and and trying to get close to these creatures and, uh, you know, Unfortunately, with with no result. Yeah. In the little section here where you talk about why we haven't found a body, you say there's some evidence that these creatures may actually bury their dead. Uh, I guess just talk a little bit about that evidence because I haven't really heard much about this potential theory or whatever that they may bury their dead. Well, again, a lot of this is speculation. But, um, you know, if we look at other Homo, I guess you would say that other species in the genus Homo, such as the Neanderthals, 
we know that the Neanderthals did in fact perform burial ceremonies for their dead. Uh, this was a completely different species, uh, very human-like, very intelligent, of course. I believe the best evidence I've heard or the best account I've heard of, of a Bigfoot burial uh uh, happened when I was at a Bigfoot conference in Washington State uh, several years ago, uh, the Sasquatch Symposium. And there was, in fact, uh, one researcher there from the Pacific Northwest. Um, it may have been Chris Murphy, I think, well well-noted Bigfoot researcher, uh, that was discussing a possible Bigfoot um, burial, burial mound uh, that had been, uh, you know, that someone had apparently either stumbled upon this, this mound or had actually seen uh, a Bigfoot being buried, perhaps by other Bigfoot creatures. Um, I'm afraid I can't really remember the the whole account beyond that. Um, so again, there's there's not a lot of evidence to support this. But if again, if we were dealing with a more human-like type of creature, um, something perhaps that has you know much much more intelligence than we give it credit for, then there's no reason to think that they would not perhaps bury their dead again to hide them from humans um, because. Uh, these creatures, uh, I guess, uh, if you consider the fact that they are primitive human-like creatures, uh, we've been their biggest competition for the last several thousand years, and perhaps we were the ones that nearly hunted them to the, the brink of extinction. Um, so, you know, if, if we take that into account, then uh, certainly they they probably fear us as much as we, or more than we fear them, and uh, would do whatever they could to avoid detection. They're an amazing creature, and... Uh... When I went to the San Diego Zoo a few years ago and saw the, the panda there and just how elaborate the thing was for the panda, just sort of made me think of a world where the Bigfoot's been captured and how amazing that would be to be able to see one in a zoo or something like that. So hopefully in my lifetime, uh, we'll, we'll get that opportunity. Let's sort of do a speculative look here at, at uh, now I've kind of always sort of worried in a way that if Bigfoot were proven to be real, that even though it would be kind of good for cryptozoology, you know, all the other animals in cryptozoology, because then it would give credence to a lot of them, and people would maybe uh, not be as skeptical. I also kind of worry that since Bigfoot's sort of like the tentpole of the whole community, that if Bigfoot were gone, then it would sort of hurt the community in a way. Well, what do you think about that whole idea, you know, on a sociological level, if, if the Bigfoot mystery were proven that's a huge chunk of cryptozoology that all of a sudden goes goes to the zoology world and is is out of our hands now. Well, yeah, I think I mean, that would be the logical thing that uh, the established scientists and zoologists would take over at that point. I don't know. That's an interesting thing to uh, to consider. I'm not really sure how that would all play out. Um, I think there will always be a place for cryptozoologists because there are just so many different types of cryptids or mystery animals that have been reported all over the world. And I don't think there's enough manpower or funding, you know, to investigate all these different things. But certainly in the case of an animal being proven like Bigfoot, you know, zoology would take over at that point. I'm trying to think of a good way to, I mean, it's a great question. I'm just really not sure how to approach it, uh, I guess, as far as the longevity of cryptozoology. Yeah, I feel like it would get a big boom at first, but it wouldn't have sort of that hook that, that Bigfoot seems to have been for so long for cryptozoology. You know what I mean? It's like... Mm-hmm. I feel like nowadays, and we'll get into some of these other things you've looked for in Belize, I feel like now there are more creatures coming out of the woodwork that have been around for a while that people haven't heard of, like the Duende and the Sisamite and, and uh, you know, the Almasti and all the different, you know, the Yowie and the various other Bigfoot around the world and stuff. But I feel like the 
the classic North American Bigfoot is such a, uh, a tentpole or, or, you know, it's the standard, it's the big daddy of cryptozoology. And I just worry that, you know, if, if cryptozoology loses that, now believe me, I, I want the Bigfoot mystery proven beyond a doubt. But I do sort of uh, worry or, or am intrigued, I guess you could say, by what the field would look like after that happened because there wouldn't be a big North American monster anymore that we know of, that I can think of, unless, you know, although, in a way, now I'm kind of rambling and <laughs> speculating on my own, but in a way, if we just got one Bigfoot and proved that Bigfoot was real, it could also create a huge new boom in cryptozoology of people looking for more Bigfoot, which could be good and bad. Absolutely. Well, I think I think if Bigfoot were to be discovered uh, here in North America, it would be enormous validation for everyone that's been involved in, in cryptozoology and Bigfoot research. Uh, much like you've seen with other major animal discoveries in the past century, of course, the giant squid, the Komodo dragon, the panda, as you mentioned, and you know, one big one was the coelacanth, which was a fossil fish that was caught in 1938 off the, the coast of South Africa. Uh, this was an animal that was presumed to be extinct for millions and millions of years, and suddenly we had a live one, or uh, rather a recently dead one, I guess. Um, so, you know, periodically we do have these major animal discoveries and it is the validation that cryptozoology needs, you know, kind of reinforces the fact that there are a lot of things out there that we just don't know about yet that we haven't discovered. Um, I, I think even if Bigfoot is discovered in North America, you have a sort of a global effect, um, because similar creatures have been reported all over the world. Of course, the Yeti or of the Himalaya mountains, you have the Yaren of China, the Yowie of Australia. So then they, I think the search would be refocused as to, you know, discover are these related creatures? Are they the same thing? Are they subspecies? Are they different? Um, and then you have the other big kingpin of cryptozoology, which is the lake, lake monster and the sea serpent, the water monsters, which I kind of grouped together into one kind of one group because uh, there are so many similarities in descriptions around the world. Uh, and that's fascinating in its own right because, you know, the oceans, of course, are some of the most unexplored places on the planet. We still know very, very little about what lies below the surface. Uh, and there could be anything down there. Yeah. Um, so I think the whole shift of cryptozoology or, or the whole uh, field of cryptozoology, rather, would shift to, to those types of animals and cryptids. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, continuing on as far as, you know, looking into some of these other Bigfoot-type creatures around the world. Yeah, because even if they find, like, a Bigfoot in Oregon, there's still, like, the whole idea of the skunk ape and the Pennsylvania Bigfoot that's supposed to be kind of different from the from the Oregon Bigfoot. So, you know, the, there's probably different sort of types of Bigfoots and stuff that, that maybe it would reignite the... Uh, the search and uh, it, it would bring in science in a, in a big way, which would be huge for for the field and funding, I'm sure. So, you know, it would, it would be a good thing, I guess, in, in the long run. I want to live in a post-discovered Bigfoot world. That's the gist of the question, really. I really want to live in that world and, and be able to see what that would be like. It would be awesome, I think. And it wouldn't be all freaky, like aliens are discovered, you know, that would kind of change the whole face of the planet. But if it was Bigfoot, people could kind of get on with their lives a little bit. And and still, you know, it would add a whole new weird element to the world. So, well, it would be one of the biggest scientific discoveries of our time. Obviously, um, it would certainly change a lot of what we know about anthropology and evolution because, uh, you know, these things certainly fit somewhere into that evolutionary line. And so we would it would we would understand and know more about ourselves as Homo sapiens. But moreover, I think it would just change the whole human condition. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm not one of these glory seekers, Tim, that, you know, that hopes that I'm the one necessarily that proves Bigfoot is real. I just want someone to prove it. Absolutely. And yeah. that, that's where my passion lies. I really, really want this thing to be proven. I really want people to know that these things are out there. Uh, I think it's a positive thing, uh, you know, for humankind, um, for the human condition to know that we're not alone on this planet, uh, that perhaps we've shared the planet with other human-like beings uh, for thousands and thousands of years, and we've coexisted among them. And uh, they're no, really no threat to us whatsoever. They're simply another species that's found their niche, uh, that, that's presumably tried to avoid humans so that they could stick around as long as they can. Exactly. We just don't want, like, after we capture the Bigfoot, people getting all like, should we give Bigfoot the vote? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Does he have to register? Can we recruit him for our basketball team? Exactly. I mean, all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the book, you allude to your trips to Belize, and then on your blog, you talk a little bit about them. I guess I uh, talk a little bit about these trips to Belize to look for two mystery creatures that I never heard of, the Dewendi and the Sesemite. And I'm sure you'll uh, per- show me the proper pronunciation <laughs> when you answer well, the question. But tell me, what are these things, and, uh, and you know, what were you doing over there looking for them? Well, a lot of people are not aware of the fact that Bigfoot is, of course, a a global phenomenon. Bigfoot is the common term we use here in North America, or Sasquatch. But you have heard of the Yeti of the Himalayas and some of these other creatures around the world. Uh, So it really is a global phenomenon. These, I guess you would say, hairy human-like beings are are reported uh, on a global basis. I was aware of the fact that some of these reports had been emanating from Central America. And uh, what sort of uh, woke me up to this was uh, a book by Ivan Sanderson. Ivan Sanderson is a a well-known biologist who was one of the first pioneers of cryptozoology, if you will, a a close friend of Bernard Heuvelman's, who's considered to be the father of cryptozoology. And Sanderson wrote in his classic book, uh, which was called Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, came out in the, the very early 60s. Sanderson was one of the first writers to sort of broach the global impact of these creatures all over the world. And he wrote of uh, these creatures down in, in Belize, which at the time was known as British Honduras. And uh, Sanderson had apparently traveled there with his wife on occasion and had spoken with many of the local people and had heard these stories and reports of these creatures. Uh, one is called the Duende, and the Duende is described very similar to Bigfoot, only very much, much smaller. And uh, actually, I guess you would say a pygmy size. Uh, these creatures are only about uh, reported to only be about three feet tall, um, very covered in hair, and walking upright like a man. Um, and of course, this matches the description of the famous Flores man, which uh, many people, you know, uh, heard about in the news in recent years. Uh, the Hobbit, if you will, these these small, hairy, uh, man-like creatures that were discovered, or their fossils were discovered over in Indonesia. So the, there's the Duende, and there's also the Sisamite. Uh, the Sisamite is almost identical to the Sasquatch that we have described here in North America. About eight, nine feet tall, very hairy, smells bad. Um, the Sisamite is uh, actually Spanish for shivers, and uh, it, it ties into some of the folklore and legends in Guatemala and Belize that these, when you encounter one of these creatures, basically you're you're shivering in fear or you're terrified. So I, I went over to I went down to Belize to actually investigate these these creatures because there, to my knowledge, had not been a lot of research done down there. 
and uh, I thought it was a conducive place to do research. It's an English-speaking uh, country. Uh, it's not an incredibly expensive plane ticket from, from where I am here in Texas. Uh, so uh, my wife and I traveled down there uh, in 2004 and also 2006, uh, two different expeditions. We went to an area uh, called the Maya Mountains, specifically the Pine Ridge of the Maya Mountains, which is one of the highest elevations in the in the nation of Belize. Uh, it's far in the interior of the country, and, and Belize is actually uh, one of the least populated countries in Central America. There's only about 200,000, 280,000 people in the entire country, and most of those live in the coastal areas. So once you get into the interior, uh, it's, of course, very mountainous, jungle, uh, not very good roads, and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we traveled down there, we, of course, interviewed many of the locals, and everyone was familiar with the Duende. Uh, what's interesting is that the Duende is oftentimes related to oh, very similar, I guess you would say, to some of the other little people legends around the world. You know, when we talk about fairies and gnomes and elves and, and so forth, yeah. uh, basically they're associated with wooded areas. They're mischievous, uh, playful at times. Uh, but what's really interesting about the Duende is that many people have reported them as wearing, believe it or not, very large hats, similar to sombreros, um, and sometimes carrying machetes. So in that in that uh, respect... That's weird. Yeah, it's pretty weird. <laughs> Uh, so, so in many ways, the people of Belize who are very traditional, many of them from Maya descent, they sort of uh, link the Duende to some of their mythology and folklore, and it, it seems to be more magical in nature. Although, when Sanderson wrote about it, uh, many people that he'd interviewed had specifically described them as looking like basically like large apes, you know, or small hairy men with man-like faces. Um, so it's really hard to distinguish and break that apart. What I found was that, again, many people had seen the Duende or had heard of the Duende, but um, many of the reports I heard had sort of a magical or almost paranormal aspect to them, so it was very hard for me to believe everything that I was hearing. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that we actually did find some tracks, I guess you would say primate tracks, in, in one area of the Pine Ridge, and I was able to cast a couple of these. One of them specifically had a very, very pointy heel, which is one of the, the attributes that Sanderson had written about, that the Duende tracks were always reported as having a very pointy heel. Hmm. These tracks were, of course, very small. They were only about six inches long, about three and a half inches across. And I can't say conclusively they are Duende tracks, but it was just very interesting that I did find those and that they did appear to be primates and certainly didn't resemble any of the other animal species that are known in that area. Uh, now, as far as the Sissimite goes... Uh, there have been actually a lot more reports, and it, again, fits the profile of the traditional Sasquatch or Bigfoot. You know, no no big hats, no machetes, uh, basically just a large, hairy, man-like thing that, that lives in the remote mountains and woods and so forth. And there have been a number of reports that have uh, emanated from the southern part of Belize, an area uh, known as the Blue Creek, um, and the Ketchke Maya people that live in that area. Uh, I was only able to make it uh, down to the southern part of the country for a brief time, and uh, I did interview many people who had talked about the tradition of the Sisamite, how their parents and grandparents had often told them as they were growing up about these creatures and about their calls, which were basically loud, bellowing screams. And uh, the most recent thing that I that I was informed of was apparently there was a large or very large human-like tracks that were discovered at a shrimp farm down on the coast. And when I say very large, uh, the person told me that they they were like 18 inches long. Uh, 
but but basically look like human footprints. So I I, I found a little bit of evidence uh, that there's something going on down there. Um, obviously, you can imagine the, the logistics of traveling to a foreign country that you've never been to, not knowing the terrain. Uh, I did have a very good guide, a local Maya man, who was very comfortable out in the jungle. But with all of the logistical problems involved, um, you know, other than the, the tracks, which are, are very curious, I really did not turn up a lot of good evidence, uh, which was very unfortunate. And I'd like to go back someday and kind of follow up because I, I really think there is a real possibility if we do have any type of undiscovered primates in uh, the Americas, uh, you know, the jungles of Central America certainly have to be considered. Uh, they're very unpopulated, very remote, hard to get to, and would provide the food and the, and the coverage and the shelter that, that, that any type of uh, a very large primate would need. I don't know if I mentioned this during the show here or before we started the interview, but uh, yeah, we, we posted the mini interview on with Adam Davies, which was all about his expeditions to different countries and stuff. So I, my hat goes off to you guys who do this kind of thing, because like you said, the logistics and the money involved and just the stress of it all, that sounds like a lot to bear. And Belize sounds like a nice place to live. English speaking, only 200,000 people. Sounds like my kind of country. I might have to make the move over to Belize sometime when uh, if I ever win the lottery or something. It's absolutely beautiful, and uh, ironically, the area where we were doing the research in the Maya Mountains, Director Francis Ford Coppola actually owns a lodge up there where he has people flown in by helicopter, and it's apparently some type of paradise. Uh, it, it's really, really beautiful. I mean, there's waterfalls, uh, pyramids in the jungle, oh, wow. you know, exotic birds, monkeys. We were fortunate enough to uh, to come across a group of howler monkeys and sort of observe them one day. Um, so it really is a, a beautiful place to visit, and it would be a wonderful place to live, I think. Now, on the subject of the Duende, you raised kind of an interesting thing that popped into my head when you were talking about them, and that's just that in other countries that do seem to be legends and reports and stuff of, uh, let's call them little feet, for lack of a better term. Uh, sure. Um, you know, like in Australia, you have the Junjidi and all kinds of weird uh, stories and stuff from Europe and everything like that. But it didn't seem like there are too many North American Little Feet stories. Do you know of any? I don't, I don't need the actual stories, but is there much of a of a fabric of legend as far as, uh, you know, little versions of Bigfoot uh, in America? Not really in North America. Somewhere I've seen a reference to some that have been reported in a, in a place in Oregon. But predominantly we hear about these I guess little feet, as you want to call them. Ivan Sanderson also referred to them as proto-pygmies. The most famous of these is the Orang Pendek of Sumatra. Oh, yeah. There's also the Agagwe and the Sahite of Africa. There's the Shiru and the Didi of uh, South America. And then the uh, Duende of Belize. And what's really interesting is that all of these little feet or proto-pygmy creatures uh, inhabit equatorial regions. And if you go across a, a globe and sort of pinpoint all these different places we're talking about, you'll see that they're all in very subtropical climates, uh, which makes a lot of sense from a zoological point of view, because a larger animal like Bigfoot would be more adept at surviving in a colder climate. Uh, larger animals, of course, are better at retaining body heat, oftentimes you know, using things like hibernation and so forth. Smaller animals are, are obviously very comfortable at home in hotter uh, climates uh, because of you know, they're able to expend more energy and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Now, you kind of touched a little bit on the Duende being sort of like a trickster thing, and that kind of ties in a lot with sort of what 
I have heard about other creatures of that ilk, of that size and, and description. So we could be dealing with something even more bizarre than we even can imagine if if, uh, if some of these stories hold up. Because uh, consistently, from what I've heard, with the exception of the Orang Pendek, which uh, I haven't heard too many stories about it, its personality, but a lot of these stories I hear about these little creatures uh, in other countries, and I did hear about some sort of weird things uh, up here in Massachusetts, uh, uh, puckwudgies they're called. Uh-huh, I've uh, heard of those as well. Yeah, they all sort of have a trickster element to them, so that that may be something interdimensional that we don't know about yet. Who knows, but it's a strange... Well, the linchpin, the linchpin there, Tim, is, again, Flora's man. Uh, that was a huge discovery a few years ago when they discovered those little skeletons down in Indonesia on the island of Flores. Uh, you know, they've been, of course, the subject of a lot of controversy and speculation, uh, but the best theory out there right now is that we were, you know, what we had was a pygmy form of Homo erectus. And, of course, Homo erectus was a, a human ancestor that, that lived up until, you know, tens of thousands of years ago and was very, very successful at uh, spreading out of Africa into Asia and, and in other parts around the world. So if, if, if we're looking at perhaps an evolved form or a pygmy form of Homo erectus, you know, who's to say, you know, where these things could have traveled and, and certainly they could have originated in Africa or Indonesia and, you know, perhaps come over the same land bridge that, that Bigfoot presumably came across into North America. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's strange. I'd like to see more... Uh examination of the little feet, as I like to call it, <laughs> as I like Absolutely. to call them. Now, uh, when we talked here uh, in, in Boston for the Monster Mash, you were talking about the, you have done some research on the Texas Chupacabras story that's sort of been percolating over the last few years down there in Texas, and I've been, I'll admit to being rather cynical or skeptical to the Texas Chupacabras story. I always kind of just figured they were all mangy dogs, but I know that you've actually done research into it, not just read web stories like I have. So <laughs> you, you, I'm sure you have more perspective on it. What's going on down there in Texas with these Chupacabras, in, in quotes I'll use uh, for now, stories that have been going on down in Texas and kind of spread a little bit to Arizona and New Mexico area too, it seems. Uh, but a lot of weird Chupacabra activity or chupacabra-esque animals being described in, in some cases. Well, I think all the stuff that's been shot and captured or, or found dead turns out to be uh, dogs or something like that. But enlighten us as to your research, I guess you could say, into the Texas chupacabras. Well, the Texas chupacabras was sort of a new terrain for me as far as cryptozoology goes. First of all, because we had actual physical specimens or animals that we could study. But we have to go back and retrace a little bit you know, the history of the chupacabras. Uh, of course, it started in Puerto Rico in the 1990s. There were livestock killings down there. People were basically reporting an animal that didn't fit the profile of anything that's accepted by zoology, uh, something that was sort of, I guess, a cross between a reptile, a kangaroo, a dog, uh, all types of different physical attributes that just didn't add up. Uh, but what was really compelling is the way that these livestock were being killed. Uh, farmers and ranchers were reporting that their chickens and goats and other small animals were basically being discovered uh, dead in their pens and completely devoid of blood, uh, oftentimes with telltale puncture wounds left in the bodies. So that's kind of where the story b broke off there and kind of where it picks up in Texas because it's kind of a similar scenario. Uh, that, that's kind of how these animals first made their appearance and came on the scene back in 2004. Uh, there was a rancher named Devin McAnally down here in a place called Elmendorf, very close to San Antonio, uh, started losing a huge number of chickens over a short period of time. Uh, he was discovering their bodies pretty much intact, which was very unusual because most 
varmints such as coyotes and dogs and big cats will actually either eat the remains of the animal in part or completely take the animal with them. And in this case, the animals were basically not being consumed. Their blood was being consumed. Uh, the bodies were left pretty much intact. And, and then uh, McAnally started having sightings of this weird animal on his property, which he thought originally was some kind of weird dog-like animal. It had a strange color. It moved strange. It, it, to him, it didn't resemble a coyote, which he had dealt with before. Um, he finally did shoot the animal, took some pictures of it, of its dead body, and, and showed the pictures around, and no one was able to really you know, put a name to it. Some of the elderly uh, Spanish people in the, in the uh, neighborhood actually began calling it a chupacabra and said that it resembled the chupacabra uh, that their parents and grandparents had told them about in Mexico. So suddenly we had a new chapter because there was actually more tradition and folklore behind these creatures than we thought. Hmm. And then, of course, in, uh, since 2004, th- at least three more of these, and I believe up to six of these animals now that I'm aware of, have been shot or found dead. And the most famous one was found by a lady named Phyllis Canyon down in Quero, Texas, uh, the summer of 2007. Uh, similar to McAnally, she had lost a number of her chickens in an unusual fashion. Uh, most of them were being killed in a vampiric way with their blood being uh, consumed. And uh, she finally did find this animal road-killed near her home. She took it home, took pictures of it. Uh, Phyllis is quite a character. She's actually uh, grown up as a hunter in Texas, but she's also lived in Africa with her husband and been on many uh, you know, big-game safaris and so forth. So Phyllis actually was uh, ingenious enough to remove the head and skin of this animal and to preserve it. Uh, in her freezer. So anyways, uh, to get to the point, I, I've been able to to actually examine the remains of all these animals. And uh, they are obviously canines. Uh, you know, and I think we're oversimplifying to just say they are dogs, but they are. They are canines. There's no doubt about that when you study the anatomy, the teeth, and so forth. Mm-hmm. But what's really weird about, about these animals is that they, they have some abnormalities. They're very much in common with each other. Uh, the main thing is that the, the lack of hair. They're completely hairless animals. Uh, now, this has been kind of explained as possibly being a bad case of the mange. Mange is a uh, a mite which gets under the skin of dogs and other animals and, and causes them to itch and, and for their hair to fall out. Yeah. You know, if, the, if this was mange, this was these were some of the most severe cases of mange either because these animals were ba- basically completely hairless, um, unlike most mangy dogs and coyotes which still have patches of hair on their body. Well, the other unusual attributes were the, the teeth, uh, very, very long fangs, exaggerated fangs. Uh, in the case of the Cuero chupacabra, there were absolutely no incisor teeth. There was, there, you know, basically in the front there were no teeth whatsoever, just these very long fangs. All of these animals also have very, very long tails. And I think that's interesting when we talk about them as canines, because typically canines, uh, the canine tail is not as long as, as what we're seeing here on these animals here in Texas. It's almost like a rat, very long, rat-like, hairless tail, very unusual looking. And then, of course, the other attribute, which which is common, is that these all of these animals have longer hind limbs and forelimbs. Uh, so they tend to move in an unusual fashion as far as it's more like a hopping type of fashion. Yeah, like a kangaroo uh, thing that people talk exactly about. Exactly, like a kangaroo, m- more so than a dog. However, there have been DNA tests done on, on several of these animals, and the results have all come back as either a coyote or in some cases domestic dogs or in one instance as possible wolf. So we, we know that for a fact from DNA testing that they are uh, canines. But the real mystery here is why these animals look like this. 
and uh, certainly something that I, I you know I I don't know as of yet uh even though I've had a lot of opportunities to to study these these specimens and a lot of the evidence I guess the best theory I can put out there is that we're dealing with some type of mutation possibly the result of pollution possibly disease uh you know if you want to get into the whole conspiracy thing they you know the the words genetic manipulation or medical experiment have been mentioned but you know the bottom line is that we're dealing with a very very unusual creature here in Texas i don't know how well it ties into the actual chupacabra uh that we know of puerto rico although once the name it was uttered i mean there was really no getting around it uh you know that's just basically uh, what people uh, you know they like to use the word down here uh, i think it's become a very popular thing in in hispanic latin culture they're very proud of it um but moreover there does seem to be some you know, folklore, tradition, and history behind these animals that perhaps they've been around much longer than we think they have. Um, so that's it in essence. But really the, the, the really unusual aspect for me as a researcher was dealing with, you know, again, the, you know, the behavioral patterns, the way that they were killing these chickens, uh, you know, apparently just drinking the blood only without eating any of the meat. When you look at the behavior and also the physical abnormalities, um, it, it definitely adds up to something that, that can't be explained neatly. It's, it's still somewhat of a mystery, I think. If it was an unknown species, like the, the DNA test wouldn't have come back the way they did then, right? It's not like they just were like, well, it's close to a wolf, so we'll say it's a wolf. Yeah, and again, a lot of scientists are going to err on the, on the conservative side. You know, the DNA, uh, definitely the DNA strands closely match coyotes, dogs, and other animals. Therefore, that's what they are. But, uh, you know, again, if you look at the big picture, the behavior pattern of these anim- these animals were, uh, you know, they, they seem to be uh, unafraid of humans uh, in, in many of the cases where I talk to eyewitnesses. Unlike coyotes and other wild dogs, which will typically retreat or run away, uh, these animals were a lot more aggressive. They did not seem to be afraid of the humans that were, you know, around. And, of course, the way they were killing animals and and, and, and getting their food was, was very unusual as well, and the way they move. So, I mean, there, there are definitely some differences there. You know, if we're, gonna, if we're simply going to say that they're, uh, you know, just mangy coyotes or weird dogs, I think we're oversimplifying a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've opened my eyes to this thing. I'm going to be paying more attention to it now because, uh, like I said, I had sort of dismissed it out of hand uh, until I heard from you here about what's really going on. Hopefully we can get one alive uh, right now. Sounds like it's kind of like a little bit of a flap going on down there. Maybe... Maybe one will turn up alive somehow. We could that would be a boon, I think, to figure out what's really going on. Now, when they did the DNA tests and stuff, uh, maybe not so much in DNA, but would they have been able to figure out if it had been mutated or if it was diseased of some kind, or is that not possible with you know the test that they did? Uh, they weren't able to to find out, for example, if it was mange, uh, because uh, some of the skin samples that were taken off a dead animal, it's very difficult to analyze and test dead tissue. So I think in that respect, you're right. I think if we get a live one, that the, the, the testing will be a lot better. Uh, the tissue samples and blood samples and so forth will be a lot, you know, fresher and, and, and cleaner and so forth. Yeah. I'm actually in the process of trying to trap one. There, there's a gentleman out here uh, in a place called Fayetteville, Texas, who contacted me months ago. Claims he's seen up to four of them on his property at one time. Uh, many people in his family have claimed sightings of these things recently. Uh, so I'm working in conjunction with the family in, a, in an attempt to you know, build a cage or, or form some kind of trap in hopes of getting one of these things alive. Nice. But but uh, the interesting thing is that these animals are definitely multiplying. I mean, they're starting to, the reports are starting to intensify. Uh, they're obviously breeding and passing on these weird genetic traits. 
so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a weird sidebar of cryptozoology. It's not something that I ever expected. Nothing like Bigfoot or, or lake monsters, where you have this uh, sort of nefarious urban legend, uh, you know, kind of one big discovery type of thing. I mean, you're actually there. We're seeing a lot of these animals pop up. It's obviously a known species that somehow diverged or mutated into something else, but it's still a mystery, and I think it still kind of opens our, our eyes to the fact that there's a lot of things in nature that we just don't understand yet. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the perfect way, I think, to close out the program here. What's next for you, Ken Gerhard? Of course, we talked about Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters. Now, I know you got a couple other books out, I think, uh, a couple other books, right? Um, I have a book called Monsters Are Real. It was a self-published book, um, probably very difficult to get a hold of. Oh, okay, Maybe some so. out there on eBay or something, but I'm, I'm hoping to do a reissue of that right now. Uh, I'm also working on a new book right now, um, along with Nick Redfern. Um, we're collaborating on a piece that we're both very excited about. That should hopefully be out this year. And uh, I can't give too much away, Tim, but I've, I've just completed filming a TV show uh, special. It's going to be on the History Channel in April. It's going to be about werewolves. I guess that's about all I can say right now. And that was very exciting for me to uh, to actually get into something like a werewolf, which uh, doesn't fit into cryptozoology in the traditional sense. But I think that, uh, you know, it certainly opens the mind to the possibilities that, you know, perhaps these reports and legends of werewolves that we have throughout history could somehow be connected to an actual animal species out there that we just don't know about or don't, you know, have not discovered yet. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, werewolves are always uh, spooky and weird. And, of course, people can find out more from you at tonezone.com slash Ken, T-O-N-E-Z-O-N-E dot com slash Ken, or go to myspace.com slash Ken Gerhard, K-E-N-G-E-R-H-A-R-D, I know you were on a couple episodes of Monster Quest. What episodes uh, were you on there so people can check it out? I know they replay them quite often, and, uh, you know, I like to pick them up on TiVo when I know the people who were on the episode. So uh, what what episodes of Monster Quest are you on that we can look for in in the replay schedule? Yeah, for anyone that's interested, I I appear in an episode of Series 1 called Monster Quest Birdzilla, and, of course, that's the one where we we discuss the Thunderbirds and the Big Bird uh, reports. In uh, series, uh, sorry, season two, I appear in the, of course, the Chupacabra episode, and that's where we actually mount an ex- expedition here in South Texas in an attempt to capture one of these animals. And I also appear on a show called Legend Hunters Bigfoot, uh, which uh, airs from time to time on the Travel Channel. Awesome, awesome. So uh, plug those into your TiVo, folks, and uh, hopefully they'll come up. And you can find out more from Ken Gerhard and see him in action in living color on your TV screen. Always fun to do that uh, after I've interviewed somebody on the show to turn on my Monster Quest on my TiVo and, and see them in action doing research and stuff like that. Well, Ken, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I had you slotted here for an hour, but you got so much material that we ended up going two hours, and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit talking to you about all sorts of different cryptozoological stuff. Bigfoot, Big Bird, Littlefoot, as I like to call him, the Wendy, the Sesemite, the Texas Chupacabra, all kinds of stuff. I, I really i uh, am amazed by the, the wide range of creatures you've examined and looked at and We'll be following your career with with bated breath and enjoying uh, your adventures and your postings and your travels and stuff, and hopefully we can keep in touch. I don't know if you'll be making it up uh, to the next Monster Mash up here in Boston next year. If so, I hope to see you. If not, uh, there's always a chance I'll be down in Texas sometime in the near future or in the distant future to uh, visit Nick Redfern and do a little traveling around Texas because, as I said, it's a hotbed of esoteric activity that I definitely want to check out. 
But like I said, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Ken. It was great talking to you. It was great meeting you back in Boston this past October, and hopefully this is the beginning of a, a fruitful and continuing friendship between the two of us. Well, thank you, Tim. Uh, it certainly was an honor and a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Uh, it was great meeting you in Massachusetts, and of course, I've been a big fan of the show, so it's, it's very exciting for me to finally be on here with you. So thank you so much for having me. That does it for the big return of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big thanks to Ken Gerhard for coming on the show. You can find out more from Ken at the website, www.tonezone.com slash Ken, T-O-N-E-Z-O-N-E dot com slash Ken. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And it is a much-anticipated listener feedback because I teased the anti-Gian Kassar email right before the winter hiatus, and I actually got a few emails from people asking me what the story was with this. So it's a pretty highly anticipated listener feedback. I don't want to overhype it. Uh, so we'll just dive into the email, and then I'll respond. It comes from Konomi Pikajuna. No hometown listed. And here's what Konomi has to say. I enjoy your programs. I do. The interview with, for example, Jacques Vallée was wonderful. He clearly is both broad-minded but scientific, which is too rare. But I had to turn off your interview with the Bermuda Triangle guy. So somebody went back through the historical record and pulled out hundreds of previously undocumented disappearances on the high seas. I could probably do the same thing off any coast that is storm-prone and with large amounts of sea and air traffic and criminal activity. Where is the statistical relevant evidence? The point is, I don't understand how you can be equally impressed enough by this story to give his book such a ringing endorsement as you had previously given Valet's books. How many of these guys need to come on your show empty-handed? You should get on some guests like Michio Kaku or some of the exoplanet scientists. What about the weird political conspiracies or black ops weirdness like the Bohemian Grove or MK Ultra? What about JFK? Why not talk to G. Edward Griffin about the $700 trillion derivative monster strangling our economy and owning the Federal Reserve? Certainly more frightening than blurry pictures of swamp apes. A guy traipsing around the Congo looking for a dinosaur may be entertaining, but it is not important. It is banal. That's spelled B-A-N-A-L, not B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That's very creative of you, Konami. I think metaphysics and esoterica should be more than fantasy, entertainment, and escapism. It should be a powerful and new way at looking at the problems of this world. Signed, Konami Pikajuna. So there you go. That was the email that I was talking about at the end of the program, right before the winter hiatus. I don't even know how to respond to this, so I'll just go point by point through some of what Konami has to say. First, I think Gian addressed why the Bermuda Triangle was different than any other coast that is as you say, storm-prone with large amounts of sea and air traffic and criminal activity. You said you turned off the interview, so you probably didn't hear him address that. The larger point here, as you say, I don't understand how you can be equally impressed enough by this story to give his book such a ringing endorsement as you had previously given Valet's books. I'm going to have to disagree with you wholly on that statement. First and foremost, we're talking about two completely different genres of esoterica, and I don't recall actually saying that I was equally impressed with the two books. So I think you're kind of projecting there as far as what I was trying to say about the goodness of the book. I do think it's a great book. I think it's outstanding. I think it's a seminal work on the Bermuda Triangle. On the other hand, Valet's books change the way I think about UFOs. I'm not saying one's better than the other. 
They're two different things. Also, everyone knows I am the master of hyperbole. I put over books I enjoy huge, but you have to have a very critical ear to delineate which ones I'm saying are super awesome and which ones I'm saying are pretty good and which ones I'm saying are crap. I'd like to think my listeners are smart enough to be able to figure that out. As far as people coming on the show empty-handed, you're going to have to say who. We've never had someone on with blurry pictures of swamp apes, as far as I can tell, so that's a complete fabrication. And I really don't understand why you need to take a shot at poor Adam Davies here in the email, a guy traipsing around the Congo looking for a dinosaur. I mean, if you didn't like the show, don't listen to it. But don't shit all over Adam Davies. It takes a lot of guts to go down there into the Congo and around the world to look for information on these cryptids. To a larger point, I have no problem with the topics and guests you suggested. The issue here really is that you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. If you'd written to me saying, hey, you know, I didn't really like the Gian Kassar interview, but I would really like episodes with these guests, you know, maybe I'd be a little more open-minded to listening to your point of view, and I wouldn't just tune you out because you go after Adam Davies and you go after Gian Kassar. And at the end of the email here regarding metaphysics and esoterica, being more than fantasy, entertainment, and escapism, but instead a powerful and new way of looking at the problems of this world. That sounds like an amazingly awesome point of view on things. But at the same time, I'm a realist, okay? And I'm not the type of person that says just because something should be one way that I'm going to bang my head against the wall and try and make it that way. I accept the way things are. Esoterica is a form of entertainment, whether you like it or not. And, in essence, really, the program is escapism. You can listen to this two-hour interview we just had with Ken Gerhard. You shut it off. You're going to know more about Big Birds and Bigfoot and all these other cryptids. But you can get on with your life. I mean, isn't the show really escapism in and of itself? To sum it all up, I appreciate your input, Konami. I'm sorry you didn't like the Gian Kassar interview. But they can't all be winners for every listener. I got so many positive emails about the Gian Kassar episode that it was more than worthy of being a part of the program, regardless of your thoughts on the Bermuda Triangle mystery. I hope you tune in for more episodes. I hope you enjoy the shows that fall into your wheelhouse and your interests. But at the end of the day, as the listeners of this program know, I try not to take Esoterica too seriously. There's far too many people in the world of the paranormal who live and die by this stuff. That's cool. I understand that. I'm not one of those people. The show is entertainment, it is fantasy, it is escapism, it is BOA Audio. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, here's how you do it. Simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. And finally, you can also join up at the usofe.com, the official BOA forum, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E dot com. Check it out. Time now, of course, for the thanks portion of the show. We've got two new great columnists at Banal of America, two new awesome folks who are part of the staff at BOA. Let me run down the complete list, and you'll hear the two new folks at the end. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Paul, and Lasha Siniuk. Paul from Canada writes our new Every Other Wednesday column, The Fringe Report, and Lasha writes the Every Thursday column, Field Notes, two new great additions to the BOA staff and the written offerings from Banal of America. I definitely want to check those out. And, of course, check out the columns of all the great BOA writers and staff members. 
they did an outstanding job this month carrying the website while I was on break. We posted at least 20 columns from all the different POA writers. If you didn't check those out, you missed out on some great stuff, but they're still there at the website, so you definitely want to go back and check them out. Benallofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. When I last left you, it was the break time, and I didn't want to ask for donations because we weren't producing episodes for about a month. Well, we're back. We've taped about six new interviews already, and as such, it would probably be best for me to ask for donations here. The economy just keeps getting worse, and I know a lot of folks are just scraping by, so I'm not going to ask you to make a donation if you can't afford it. But for those folks who are doing all right, who are sitting pretty, and will be able to hopefully weather this economic storm, I ask you to make a donation. How do you do that? You go to Banal of America, and you click the PayPal button. You can find it right on the main page or on the audio archive page. Click that. That'll take you to PayPal. All donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio and keeping the website and the podcast up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. I'm going to lose my voice here because we've got a lot to talk about for next week's program. It is the beginning of the first ever BOA Audio three-part mini-series. It's the longest interview in the history of this program, nearly four hours. Our guest is esteemed ufologist Ann Druffle. She'll be talking about the Tahunga Canyon contacts and Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science. In total, that's 800 pages of text, and we're going to delve into all of it in true BOA audio style, spaced out over three weeks, nearly four hours of conversation. Next week is obviously part one, and we're going to be covering the Tahunga Canyon contacts from a whole host of different angles. This recently reissued book, which Anne co-wrote with D. Scott Rogo, was only the second alien abduction book ever written when it was originally released in 1980. Anne's going to talk about how she got involved in the case, how the world of ufology and abductions met in the 1970s, the contagion effect of the abductions discussed in the book, Anne's unique and groundbreaking theory on abductions, and how she applies other aspects of the phenomenon to her hypothesis. Plus, tons and tons more. There's even more on the written preview at BOA, but if I read all that, would be here all day. In addition to all the stuff on Tahunga Canyon, we're going to talk about Two key figures in Anne's life, her mentor, Ida Bell Epperson, who was head of the Southern California NICAP chapter, and her co-author, D. Scott Rogo, noted parapsychologist, who was murdered in 1990. In the subsequent two weeks, we're going to go in-depth on Firestorm and cover the remarkable life and amazing contributions to ufology by renowned atmospheric physicist James McDonald. We're going to be discussing so many details from that book, I can't even list them all here, Many, many, many events in the life of James McDonald, plus many major events in ufology history like Project Blue Book, the 68 Congressional Hearing on UFOs, the Condon Report, and the folding of NICAP. Not only did Anne experience and witness these events firsthand, she then re-experienced them from McDonald's perspective when she wrote Firestorm. So it's just a breathtaking look at UFO history. I'll have a much more detailed preview of the Firestorm portion of the miniseries next week at the end of the program. And Druffle, the first ever BOA Audio mini-series three-part episode to Hunger Canyon Contacts Week 1, Firestorm, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science in Weeks 2 and 3. Easily a classic interview from BOA Audio you're definitely going to want to check out. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. It's great to be back. 
hopefully we can get things up and running a little smoother and faster for you next week. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. I hope you found the program once again and our usual folks got the word out. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.